International Short Stories, Volume 2. English Stories. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edward Kirkby. International Short Stories, Volume 2. English Stories, edited by William Patton. Section 17. The Seer de Maltois' Door, by R. L. Stevenson. Part one. Denis de Beaulieu was not yet two and twenty, but he counted himself a grown man, and a very accomplished cavalier into the bargain. Lads were early formed in that rough, warfaring epoch, and when one has been in a pitch battle, and a dozen raids, has killed one's man in an honourable fashion, and knows a thing or two of strategy and mankind, a certain swagger in the gate is surely to be pardoned. He had put up his horse with due care, and supped with due deliberation, and then, in a very agreeable frame of mind, went out to pay a visit in the grey of the evening. It was not a very wise proceeding on the young man's part. He would have done better to remain beside the fire, or go decently to bed. For the town was full of the troops of Burgundy and England, under a mixed command, and though Dennis was there on safe conduct, his safe conduct was like to serve him little on a chance encounter. It was September, 1429. The weather had fallen sharp. A flighty, piping wind, laden with showers, beat about the township, and the dead leaves ran riot along the streets. Here and there a window was already lighted up, and the noise of men-at-arms making merry over supper within came forth in fits, and was swallowed up and carried away by the wind. The night fell swiftly, the flag of England fluttering on the spire-top, grew ever fainter and fainter against the flying clouds, a black speck like a swallow in the tumultuous leaden chaos of the sky. As the night fell, the wind rose, and began to hoot under archways and roar amid the tree-tops in the valley below the town. Denis de Beaulieu walked fast, and was soon knocking at his friend's door, but though he promised himself to stay only a little while, and make an early return, his welcome was so pleasant, and he found so much to delay him, that it was already long past midnight before he said good-bye upon the threshold. The wind had fallen again in the meanwhile, the night was as black as the grave, not a star, nor a glimmer of moonshine, slipped through the canopy of cloud. Dennis was ill-acquainted with the intricate lanes of Chateau Landon. Even by daylight he had found some trouble in picking his way, and in this absolute darkness he soon lost it altogether. He was certain of one thing only, to keep mounting the hill, for his friend's house lay at the lower end or tail of Chateau Landon, while the inn was up at the head, under the great church spire. With this clue to go upon he stumbled and groped forward, now breathing more freely in open places, where there was a good slice of sky overhead now feeling along the wall in stifling closes. It is an eerie and mysterious position to be thus submerged, in opaque blackness, in an almost unknown town. The silence is terrifying in its possibilities. The touch of cold window bars to the exploring hand startles the man like the touch of a toad. The inequalities of the pavement shake his heart into his mouth. A piece of denser darkness threatens an ambuscade, or a chasm in the pathway, and where the air is brighter, the houses put on strange and bewildering appearances, 
as if to lead him further from his way for dennis who had to regain his inn without attracting notice there was real danger as well as mere discomfort in the walk and he went warily and boldly at once and at every corner paused to make an observation he had been for some time threading a lane so narrow that he could touch a wall with either hand when it began to open out and go sharply downward plainly this lay no longer in the direction of his inn but the hope of a little more light tempted him forward to reconnoitre the lane ended in a terrace with a bartizan wall which gave an outlook between high houses as out of an embrasure into the valley lying dark and formless several hundred feet below dennis looked down and could discern a few tree-tops waving and a single speck of brightness where the river ran across a weir the weather was clearing up and the sky had lightened so as to show the outline of the heavier clouds and the dark margin of the hills by the uncertain glimmer the house on his left hand should be a place of some pretensions it was surmounted by several pinnacles and turret tops the round stern of a chapel with a fringe of flying buttresses projected boldly from the main block the door was sheltered under a deep porch carved with figures and overhung by two long gargoyles the windows of the chapel gleamed through the intricate tracery with a light as of many tapers and threw out the buttresses and the peaked roof in a more intense blackness against the sky it was plainly the hotel of some great family of the neighborhood and as it reminded dennis of a town-house of his own at bourges he stood for some time gazing up at it and mentally gauging the skill of the architects and the consideration of the two families there seemed to be no issue to the terrace but the lane by which he had reached it he could only retrace his steps but he had gained some notion of his whereabout and hoped by this means to hit the main thoroughfare and speedily regain the inn he was reckoning without that chapter of accidents which was to make this night memorable above all others in his career for he had not gone back above a hundred yards before he saw a light coming to meet him and heard loud voices speaking together in the echoing narrows of the lane it was a party of men-at-arms going the night round with torches dennis assured himself that they had all been making free with the wine-bowl and were in no mood to be particular about safe conducts or the niceties of chivalrous war it was like as not that they would kill him like a dog and leave him where he fell the situation was inspiriting but nervous their own torches would conceal him from sight he reflected and he hoped that they would drown the noise of his footsteps with their own empty voices if he were but fleet and silent he might evade their notice altogether unfortunately as he turned to beat a retreat his foot rolled upon a pebble he fell against the wall with an ejaculation and his sword rang loudly on the stones two or three voices demanded who went there some in french some in english but dennis made no reply and ran the faster down the lane once upon the terrace he paused to look back they still kept calling after him and just then began to double the pace in pursuit with a considerable clank of armour and great tossing of the torchlight to and fro in the narrow jaws of the passage dennis cast a look around and darted into the porch there he might escape observation or if that were too much to expect was in a capital posture whether for parley or defence 
So thinking, he drew his sword, and tried to set his back against the door. To his surprise, it yielded behind his weight, and though he turned in a moment, continued to swing back on oiled and noiseless hinges, until it stood wide open on a black interior. When things fall out opportunely for the person concerned, he is not apt to be critical about the how or why, his own immediate personal convenience seeming a sufficient reason for the strangest oddities and resolutions in our sublunary things, and so Dennis, without a moment's hesitation, stepped within and partly closed the door behind him to conceal his place of refuge. Nothing was further from his thoughts than to close it altogether, but for some inexplicable reason, perhaps by a spring or a weight, the ponderous mass of oak whipped itself out of his fingers and clanked too, with a formidable rumble, and a noise like the falling of an automatic bar. The round, at that very moment, debauched upon the terrace, and proceeded to summon him with shouts and curses. He heard them ferreting in the dark corners, the stock of a lance even rattled along the outer surface of the door behind which he stood. But these gentlemen were in too high a humour to be long delayed, and soon made off down a corkscrew pathway which had escaped Dennis's observation, and passed out of sight and hearing along the battlements of the town. Dennis breathed again. He gave them a few minutes' grace for fear of accidents, and then groped about for some means of opening the door, and slipping forth again. The inner surface was quite smooth, not a handle, not a moulding, not a projection of any sort. He got his fingernails round the edges and pulled, but the mass was immovable. He shook it. It was as firm as a rock. Denis de Beaulieu frowned, and gave vent to a little noiseless whistle. What ailed the door? he wondered. Why was it open? How came it to shut so easily and so effectually after him? There was something obscure and underhand about all this, that was little to the young man's fancy. It looked like a snare, and yet who could suppose a snare in such a quiet by-street, and in a house of so prosperous and even noble an exterior? And yet snare or no snare, intentionally or unintentionally, here he was, prettily trapped, and for the life of him he could see no way out of it again. The darkness began to weigh upon him. He gave ear. All was silent without, but within and close by he seemed to catch a faint sighing, a faint sobbing rustle, a little stealthy creak, as though many persons were at his side, holding themselves quite still, and governing even their respiration with the extreme of slyness. The idea went to his vitals with a shock, and he faced about suddenly, as if to defend his life. Then, for the first time, he became aware of a light about the level of his eyes, and at some distance in the interior of the house, a vertical thread of light widening toward the bottom, such as might escape between two wings of a rass over a doorway. To see anything was a relief to Dennis. It was like a piece of solid ground to a man labouring in a morass. His mind seized upon it with avidity, and he stood staring at it and trying to piece together some logical conception of his surroundings. Plainly there was a flight of steps ascending from his own level to that of this illuminated doorway, and indeed he thought he could make out another thread of light, as fine as a needle, and as faint as phosphorescence, which might very well be reflected along the polished wood of a handrail. 
since he had begun to suspect that he was not alone his heart had continued to beat with smothering violence and an intolerable desire for action of any sort had possessed itself of his spirit he was in deadly peril he believed what could be more natural than to mount the staircase lift the curtain and confront his difficulty at once at least he would be dealing with something tangible at least he would be no longer in the dark he stepped slowly forward with outstretched hands until his foot struck the bottom step then he rapidly scaled the stairs stood for a moment to compose his expression lifted the arras and went in he found himself in a large apartment of polished stone there were three doors one on each of three sides all similarly curtained with tapestry the fourth side was occupied by two large windows and a great stone chimney-piece carved with the arms of the maltois dennis recognized the bearings and he was gratified to find himself in such good hands the room was strongly illuminated but it contained little furniture except a heavy table and a chair or two the hearth was innocent of fire and the pavement was but sparsely strewn with rushes clearly many days old on a high chair beside the chimney and directly facing dennis as he entered sat a little old gentleman in a fur tippet he sat with his legs crossed and his hands folded and a cup of spiced wine stood by his elbow on a bracket on the wall his countenance had a strongly masculine cast not properly human but such as we see in the bull the goat or the domestic boar something equivocal and wheedling something greedy brutal and dangerous the upper lip was inordinately full as though swollen by a blow or a toothache and the smile the peaked eyebrows and the small strong eyes were quaintly and almost comically evil in expression beautiful white hair hung straight all round his head like a saint's and fell in a single curl upon the tippet his beard and moustache were the pink of venerable sweetness age probably in consequence of inordinate precautions had left no mark upon his hands and the Meltor hand was famous it would be difficult to imagine anything at once so fleshy and so delicate in design the tapered sensual fingers were like those of one of leonardo's women the fork of the thumb made a dimpled protuberance when closed the nails were perfectly shaped and of a dead surprising whiteness it rendered his aspect tenfold more redoubtable that a man with hands like these should keep them devoutly folded in his lap like a virgin martyr that a man with so intense and startling an expression of face should sit patiently on his seat and contemplate people with an unwinking stare like a god or a god statue his quiescence seemed ironical and treacherous it fitted so poorly with his looks such was alan sire de maltois dennis and he looked silently at each other for a second or two pray step in said the sire de maltois i have been expecting you all the evening he had not risen but he accompanied his words with a smile and a slight but courteous inclination of the head partly from the smile partly from the strange musical murmur with which the seer prefaced his observation dennis felt a strong shudder of disgust go through his marrow and what with disgust and honest confusion of mind he could scarcely get words together in reply i fear he said 
that this is a double accident i'm not the person you suppose me it seems you were looking for a visit but for my part nothing was further from my thoughts nothing could be more contrary to my wishes than this intrusion well well replied the old gentleman indulgently here you are which is the main point seat yourself my friend and put yourself entirely at your ease we shall arrange our little affairs presently Dennis perceived that the matter was still complicated with some misconception and he hastened to continue his explanations your door he began about my door asked the other raising his peaked eyebrows a little piece of ingenuity and he shrugged his shoulders a hospitable fancy by your own account you are not desirous of making my acquaintance we old people look for such reluctance now and then and when it touches our homer we cast about until we find some way of overcoming it you arrived uninvited but believe me very welcome you persist in error sir said dennis there can be no question between you and me i am a stranger in this countryside my name is dennis damaso de beaulieu if you see me in your house it is only my young friend interrupted the other you will permit me to have my own ideas on that subject they probably differ from yours at the present moment he added with a leer but time will show which of us is in the right dennis was convinced he had to do with a lunatic he seated himself with a shrug content to wait the upshot and a pause ensued during which he thought he could distinguish a hurried gabbling as a prayer from behind the arras immediately opposite him sometimes there seemed to be but one person engaged sometimes two and the vehemence of the voice low as it was seemed to indicate either great haste or an agony of spirit it occurred to him that this piece of tapestry covered the entrance to the chapel he had noticed from without the old gentleman meanwhile surveyed dennis from head to foot with a smile and from time to time emitted little noises like a bird or a mouse which seemed to indicate a high degree of satisfaction this state of matters became rapidly insupportable and dennis to put an end to it remarked politely that the wind had gone down the old gentleman fell into a fit of silent laughter so prolonged and violent that he became quite red in the face dennis got upon his feet at once and put on his hat with a flourish sir he said if you are in your wits you have affronted me grossly if you are out of them i flatter myself i can find better employment for my brains than to talk with lunatics my conscience is clear you have made a fool of me from the first moment you have refused to hear my explanations and now there is no power under god will make me stay here any longer and if i cannot make my way out in a more decent fashion i will hack your door in pieces with my sword the sieur de maltois raised his right hand and wagged it at dennis with the four and little fingers extended my dear nephew he said sit down nephew retorted dennis you lie in your throat and he snapped his fingers in his face sit down you rogue cried the old gentleman in a sudden harsh voice like the barking of a dog do you fancy he went on that when i had made my little contrivance for the door i had stopped short with that if you prefer to be bound hand and foot till your bones ache rise and try to go away if you choose to remain a free young buck agreeably conversing with an old gentleman why sit where you are in peace and god be with you 
do you mean i am a prisoner demanded dennis i state the facts replied the other i would rather leave the conclusion to yourself dennis sat down again externally he managed to keep pretty calm but within he was boiling with anger now chilled with apprehension he no longer felt convinced that he was dealing with a madman and if the old gentleman was sane what in god's name had he to look for what absurd or tragical adventure had befallen him what countenance was he to assume while he was thus unpleasantly reflecting the arras that overhung the chapel door was raised and a tall priest in his robes came forth and giving a long keen stare at dennis said something in an undertone to sire de maltois she is in a better frame of spirit asked the latter she is more resigned misery replied the priest now the lord help her she is hard to please sneered the old gentleman a likely stripling not ill-born and of her own choosing too why what more would the jade have the situation is not unusual for a young damsel said the other and somewhat trying to her blushes she should have thought of that before she began the dance it was none of my choosing god knows that but since she is in it by our lady she shall carry it to the end and then addressing dennis monsieur de beaulieu he asked may i present you to my niece she has been waiting your arrival i may say with an even greater impatience than myself dennis had resigned himself with a good grace all he desired was to know the worst of it as speedily as possible so he rose at once and bowed in acquiescence the sieur de maltois followed his example and limped with the assistance of the chaplain's arm toward the chapel door the priest pulled aside the arras and all three entered the building had considerable architectural pretensions a light groining sprang from six stout columns and hung down in two rich pendants from the centre of the vault the place terminated behind the altar in a round end embossed and honeycombed with a superfluity of ornament in relief and pierced by many little windows shaped like stars trefoils or wheels these windows were imperfectly glazed so that the night air circulated freely in the chapel the tapers of which there must have been half a hundred burning on the altar were unmercifully blown about and the light went through many different phases of brilliancy and semi-eclipse on the steps in front of the altar knelt a young girl richly attired as a bride a chill settled over dennis as he observed her costume he fought with a desperate energy against the conclusion that was being thrust upon his mind it could not it should not be as he feared blanche said the seer in his most flute-like tones i have brought a friend to see you my little girl turn round and give him your pretty hand it is good to be devout but it is necessary to be polite my niece the girl rose to her feet and turned toward the newcomers she moved all of a piece and shame and exhaustion were expressed in every line of her fresh young body and she held her head down and kept her eyes upon the pavement as she came slowly forward in the course of her advance her eyes fell upon dennis de beaulieu's feet feet of which he was justly vain be it remarked and wore in the most elegant accoutrement even while travelling she paused started as if his yellow boots had conveyed some shocking meaning and glanced suddenly up into the wearer's countenance 
their eyes met shame gave place to horror and terror in her looks the blood left her lips with a piercing scream she covered her face with her hands and sank upon the chapel floor that is not the man she cried my uncle that is not the man the seer de maltois chirped agreeably of course not he said i expected as much it was so unfortunate you could not remember his name indeed she cried indeed i have never seen this person till this moment i have never so much as set eyes upon him i never wish to see him again sir she said turning to dennis if you are a gentleman you will bear me out have i ever seen you have you ever seen me before this accursed hour to speak for myself i have never had that pleasure answered the young man this is the first time ziri that i have met with your engaging niece the old gentleman shrugged his shoulders i am distressed to hear it he said but it is never too late to begin i had little more acquaintance with my own late lady ere i married her which proves he added with a grimace that these impromptu marriages may often produce an excellent understanding in the long run as the bridegroom is to have a voice in the matter i will give him two hours to make up for lost time before we proceed with the ceremony and he turned toward the door followed by the clergyman the girl was at her feet in a moment my uncle you cannot be honest she said i declare before god i will stab myself rather than be forced on that young man the heart rises at it god forbid such marriages you dishonor your white hair oh my uncle pity me there is not a woman in all the world but would prefer death to such a nuptial is it possible she added faltering is it possible that you do not believe me that you still think this and she pointed at dennis with a tremor of anger and contempt that you still think this to be the man frankly said the old gentleman pausing on the threshold i do but let me explain to you once for all blanche de maltois my way of thinking about this affair when you took it into your head to dishonor my family and the name that i have borne in peace and war for more than threescore years you forfeited not only the right to question my designs but that of looking me in the face if your father had been alive he would have spat on you and turned you out of doors his was the hand of iron you may bless your god you have only to deal with the hand of velvet mademoiselle it was my duty to get you married without delay out of pure goodwill i have tried to find your own gallant for you and i believe i have succeeded but before god and all the holy angels blanche de maltois if i have not i care not one jack straw so let me recommend you to be polite to our young friend for upon my word your next groom may be less appetizing and with that he went out with the chaplain at his heels and the arras fell behind the pair the girl turned upon dennis with flashing eyes and what sir she demanded may be the meaning of all this god knows returned dennis gloomily i'm a prisoner in this house which seems full of mad people more i know not and nothing do i understand and pray how came you here she asked he told her as briefly as he could for the rest he added perhaps you will follow my example and tell me the answer to all these riddles and what in god's name is like to be the end of it she stood silent for a little 
and he could see her lips tremble and her tearless eyes burn with a feverish lustre then she pressed her forehead in both hands alas how my head aches she said wearily to say nothing of my poor heart but it is due to you to know my story unmaidenly as it must seem i am called blanche de maltois i have been without father or mother for oh for as long as i can recollect and indeed i have been most unhappy all my life three months ago a young captain began to stand near me every day in church i could see that i pleased him i am much to blame but i was so glad that any one should love me and when he passed me a letter i took it home with me and read it with great pleasure since that time he has written many he was so anxious to speak with me poor fellow and kept asking me to leave the door open some evening that we might have two words upon the stair for he knew how much my uncle trusted me she gave something like a sob at that and it was a moment before she could go on my uncle is a hard man but he is very shrewd she said at last he has performed many feats in war and was a great person at court and much trusted by queen isabeau in old days how he came to suspect me i cannot tell but it is hard to keep anything from his knowledge and this morning as we came from mass he took my hand in his forced it open and read my little billet walking by my side all the while when he had finished he gave it back to me with great politeness it contained another request to have the door left open and this has been the ruin of us all my uncle kept me strictly in my room until evening and then ordered me to dress myself as you see me a hard mockery for a young girl do you not think so i suppose when he could not prevail with me to tell him the young captain's name he must have laid a trap for him unto which alas you have fallen in the anger of god i looked for much confusion for how could i tell whether he was willing to take me for his wife on these sharp terms he might have been trifling with me from the first or i might have made myself too cheap in his eyes but truly i had not looked for such a shameful punishment as this i could not think that god would let a girl be so disgraced before a young man and now i have told you all and i can scarcely hope that you will not despise me End of section 17. Recorded by Edward Kirkby, Warwick, England. International Short Stories, Volume 2. English Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edward Kirkby. International Short Stories, Volume 2. English Stories, edited by William Patton. Section 18. The Seer de Maltois' Door, by R. L. Stevenson. Part 2. Dennis made her a respectful inclination. Madam, he said, you have honoured me by your confidence. It remains for me to prove that I am not unworthy of the honour. Is Monsieur de Maltois at hand? I believe he is writing in the salle without, she answered. May I lead you thither, madam? asked Dennis, offering his hand with his most courtly bearing. She accepted it, 
and the pair passed out of the chapel blanche in a very drooping and shamefast condition but dennis strutting and ruffling in the consciousness of a mission and the boyish certainty of accomplishing it with honor the seer de maltois rose to meet them with an ironical obeisance sir said dennis with the grandest possible air i believe i am to have some say in the matter of this marriage and let me tell you at once i will be no party to foreseeing the inclination of this young lady had it been freely offered to me i should have been proud to accept her hand for i perceive she is as good as she is beautiful but as things are i have now the honour Missouri, of refusing blanche looked at him with gratitude in her eyes but the old gentleman only smiled and smiled until his smile grew positively sickening to dennis i am afraid he said monsieur de beaulieu that you do not perfectly understand the choice i have to offer you follow me i beseech you to this window and he led the way to one of the large windows which stood open on the night you observe he went on there is an iron ring in the upper masonry and reeved through that a very efficacious rope now mark my words if you should find your disinclination to my niece's person unsurmountable i shall have you hanged out of this window before sunrise i shall only proceed to such an extremity with the greatest regret you may believe me for it is not at all your death that i desire but my niece's establishment in life at the same time it must come to that if you prove obstinate your family monsieur de beaulieu is very well in its way but if you sprang from charlemagne you should not refuse the hand of a maltois with impunity not if she had been as common as the pair's road not if she were so hideous as the gargoyle over my door neither my niece nor you nor my own private feelings move me at all in this matter the honour of my house has been compromised i believe you to be the guilty person at least you are now in the secret and you can hardly wonder if i request you to wipe out the stain if you will not your blood be on your own head it will be no great satisfaction to me to have your interesting relics kicking their heels in the breeze below my windows but half a loaf is better than no bread and if i cannot cure the dishonour i shall at least stop the scandal there was a pause i believe there are other ways of settling such imbroglios among gentlemen said dennis you were a sword and i hear you have used it with distinction the sieur de maltois made a signal to the chaplain who crossed the room with long silent strides and raised the arras over the third of the three doors it was only a moment before he let it fall again but dennis had time to see a dusky passage full of armed men when i was a little younger i should have been delighted to honour you monsieur de beaulieu said sire allan but i am now too old faithful retainers are the sinews of age and i must employ the strength i have this is one of the hardest things to swallow as a man grows up in years but with a little patience even this becomes habitual you and the lady seem to prefer the salle for what remains of your two hours and as i have no desire to cross your preference i shall resign it to your use with all the pleasure in the world no haste he added holding up his hand as he saw a dangerous look come into dennis de beaulieu's face 
if your mind revolts against hanging it will be time enough two hours hence to throw yourself out of the window or upon the pikes of my retainers two hours of life are always two hours a great many things may turn up in even as little a while as that and besides if i understand her appearance my niece has still something to say to you you will not disfigure your last hours by a want of politeness to a lady dennis looked at blanche and she made him an imploring gesture it is likely that the old gentleman was hugely pleased at this symptom of an understanding for he smiled on both and added sweetly if you will give me your word of honor monsieur de beaulieu to await my return at the end of two hours before attempting anything desperate i shall withdraw my retainers and let you speak in great privacy with mademoiselle dennis again glanced at the girl who seemed to beseech him to agree i give you my word of honor he said Maziri de maltois bowed and proceeded to limp about the apartment clearing his throat the while with that odd musical chirp which had already grown so irritating in the ears of dennis de beaulieu he first possessed himself of some papers which lay upon the table then he went to the mouth of the passage and appeared to give an order to the men behind the arras and lastly he hobbled out through the door by which dennis had come in turning upon the threshold to address a last smiling bow to the young couple and followed by the chaplain with a hand-lamp no sooner were they alone than blanche advanced toward dennis with her hands extended her face was flushed and excited and her eyes shone with tears you shall not die she cried you shall marry me after all you seem to think madam replied dennis that i stand much in fear of death oh no no she said i see you are no poltroon it is for my own sake i could not bear to have you slain for such a scruple i am afraid returned dennis that you underrate the difficulty madam what you may be too generous to refuse i may be too proud to accept in a moment of noble feeling toward me you forget what you perhaps owe to others he had the decency to keep his eyes upon the floor as he said this and after he had finished so as not to spy upon her confusion she stood silent for a moment then walked suddenly away and falling on her uncle's chair fairly burst out sobbing dennis was in the acme of embarrassment he looked round as if to seek for inspiration and seeing a stool plumped down upon it for something to do there he sat playing with the guard of his rapier and wishing himself dead a thousand times over and buried in the nastiest kitchen heap in france his eyes wandered round the apartment but found nothing to arrest them there were such wide spaces between the furniture the light fell so baldly and cheerlessly over all the dark outside air looked so coldly through the windows that he thought he had never seen a church so vast nor a tomb so melancholy the regular sobs of blanche de maltois measured out the time like the ticking of a clock he read the device upon the shield over and over again until his eyes became obscured he stared into the shadowy corners until he imagined they were swarming with horrible animals and every now and again he awoke with a start to remember that his last two hours were running and death was on the march oftener and oftener as the time went on did his glance settle on the girl herself her face was bowed forward and covered with her hands and she was shaken at intervals by the convulsive hiccup of grief even thus she was not an unpleasant object to dwell upon 
so plump and yet so fine with a warm brown skin and the most beautiful hair dennis thought in the whole world of womankind her hands were like her uncle's but there were more in place at the end of her young arms and looked infinitely soft and caressing he remembered how her blue eyes had shone upon him full of anger pity and innocence and the more he dwelt on her perfections the uglier death looked and the more deeply was he smitten with penitence at her continued tears now he felt that no man could have the courage to leave a world which contained so beautiful a creature and how he would have given forty minutes of his last hour to have unsaid his cruel speech suddenly a hoarse and ragged peal of cockcrow rose to their ears from the dark valley below the windows and this shattering noise in the silence of all around was like a light in a dark place and shook them both out of their reflections alas i could do nothing to help you she said looking up madam replied dennis with a fine irrelevancy if i have said anything to wound you believe me it was for your own sake and not for mine she thanked him with a tearful look i feel your position cruelly he went on the world has been bitter hard on you your uncle is a disgrace to mankind believe me madam there is no young gentleman in all france but would be glad of my opportunity to die in doing you a momentary service i know already that you can be brave and generous she answered what i want to know is whether i can serve you now or afterward she added with a quiver most certainly he answered with a smile let me sit beside you as if i were a friend instead of a foolish intruder try to forget how awkwardly we are placed to one another make my last moments go pleasantly and you do me the chief service possible you are very gallant she added with a yet deeper sadness very gallant and it somehow pains me but draw nearer if you please and if you find anything to say to me you will at least make certain of a very friendly listener ah monsieur de beaulieu she broke forth ah monsieur de beaulieu how can i look you in the face and she fell to weeping again with a renewed effusion madam said dennis taking her hand in both of his reflect on the little time i have before me and the great bitterness into which i am cast by the sight of your distress spare me in my last moments the spectacle of what i cannot cure even with the sacrifice of my life i am very selfish answered blanche i will be braver monsieur de beaulieu for your sake but think if i can do you no kindness in the future if you have no friends to whom i could carry your adieus charge me as heavily as you can every burden will lighten by so little the invaluable gratitude i owe you put it in my power to do something more for you than weep my mother is married again and has a young family to care for my brother guichard will inherit my fiefs and if i am not in error that will content him amply for my death life is a little vapour that passeth away as we are told by those in holy orders when a man is in a fair way and sees all life open in front of him he seems to himself to make a very important figure in the world his horse whinnies to him the trumpets blow and the girls look out of window as he rides into town before his company he receives many assurances of trust and regard sometimes by express in a letter sometimes face to face 
with persons of great consequence falling on his neck it is not wonderful if his head is turned for a time but once he is dead were he as brave as hercules or as wise as solomon he is soon forgotten it is not ten years since my father fell with many other knights around him in a very fierce encounter i do not think that any of them nor so much as the name of the fight is now remembered no no madam the nearer you come to it you see that death is a dark and dusty corner where a man gets into his tomb and has the door shut after him till the judgment day i have few friends just now and once i am dead i shall have none ah monsieur de beaulieu she exclaimed you forget blanche de maltois you have a sweet nature madam and you are pleased to estimate a little service far beyond its worth it is not that she answered you mistake me if you think i am so easily touched by my own concerns i say so because you are the noblest man i have ever met because i recognize in you a spirit that would have made even a common person famous in the land and yet here i die in a mousetrap with no more noise about it than my own squeaking answered he a look of pain crossed her face and she was silent for a little while then a light came into her eyes and with a smile she spoke again i cannot have my champion think meanly of himself any one who gives his life for another will be met in paradise by all the heralds and angels of the lord god and you have no such cause to hang your head for pray do you think me beautiful she asked with a flush indeed madam i do he said i am glad of that she answered heartily do you think there are many men in france who have been in marriage by a beautiful maiden with her own lips and who have refused her to her face i know you men would half despise such a triumph but believe me we women know more of what is precious in love there is nothing that should set a person higher in his own esteem and we women would prize nothing more dearly you are very good he said but you cannot make me forget that i was asked in pity and not for love i'm not sure of that she replied holding down her head hear me to an end monsieur de beaulieu i know how you must despise me i feel you are right to do so i am too poor a creature to occupy one thought of your mind although alas you must die for me this morning but when i asked you to marry me indeed and indeed it was because i respected and admired you and loved you with my whole soul from the very moment that you took my part against my uncle if you had seen yourself and how noble you looked you would pity rather than despise me and now she went on hurriedly checking him with her hand although i have laid aside all reserve and told you so much remember that i know your sentiments toward me already i would not believe me being nobly born weary you with importunities into consent i too have a pride of my own and i declare before the holy mother of god if you should now go back from your word already given i would no more marry you than i would marry my uncle's groom dennis smiled a little bitterly it is a small love he said that shies at a little pride she made no answer although she probably had her own thoughts come hither to the window he said with a sigh 
here is the dawn and indeed the dawn was already beginning the hollow of the sky was full of essential daylight colorless and clean and the valley underneath was flooded with a gray reflection a few thin vapors clung in the coves of the forest or lay along the winding course of the river the scene disengaged a surprising effect of stillness which was hardly interrupted when the cocks began once more to crow among the steadings perhaps the same fellow who had made so horrid a clangor in the darkness not half an hour before now sent up the merriest cheer to greet the coming day a little wind went bustling and eddying among the treetops underneath the windows and still the daylight kept flooding insensibly out of the east which was soon to grow incandescent and cast up that red-hot cannon-ball the rising sun dennis looked out over all of this with a bit of a shiver he had taken her hand and retained it in his almost unconsciously has the day begun already she said and then illogically enough the night has been so long alas what shall we say to my uncle when he returns what you will said dennis and he pressed her fingers in his she was silent blanche he said with a swift uncertain passionate utterance you have seen whether i fear death you must now know well enough that i would as gladly leap out of that window into the empty air as lay a finger on you without your free and full consent but if you care for me at all do not let me lose my life in a misapprehension for i love you better than the whole world and though i will die for you blithely it would be like all the joys of paradise to live on and spend my life in your service as he stopped speaking a bell began to ring loudly in the interior of the house and a clatter of armor in the corridor showed that the retainers were returning to their post and the two hours were at an end after all that you have heard she whispered leaning toward him with her lips and eyes i have heard nothing he replied the captain's name was florimond don chamdiver she said in his ear i did not hear it he answered taking her supple body in his arms and covering her wet face with kisses a melodious chirping was audible behind followed by a beautiful chuckle and the voice of Maziri de maltois wished his new nephew a good morning End of section 18. Recording by Edward Kirkby, Warwick, England. International Short Stories, Volume 2. English Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edward Kirkby. International Short Stories, Volume 2. English Stories, edited by William Patton. Section 19. The Secret of Gorsthorpe Grange by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle I am sure that nature never intended me to be a self-made man. There are times when I can hardly bring myself to realize that twenty years of my life were spent behind the counter of a grocer's shop in the East End of London, and that it was through such an avenue that I reached a wealthy independence and the possession of Gorsthorpe Grange. My habits are conservative, and my tastes refined and aristocratic. I have a soul which spurns the vulgar herd. Our family, the Diods, date back to a prehistoric era, 
as is to be inferred from the fact that their advent into British history is not commented on by any trustworthy historian. Some instinct tells me that the blood of a crusader runs in my veins. Even now, after the lapse of so many years, such exclamations as by a lady rise naturally to my lips, and I feel that, should circumstances require it, I am capable of rising in my stirrups and dealing an infidel a blow, say with a mace, which would considerably astonish him. Gorsthorpe Grange is a feudal mansion, or so it was termed in the advertisement which originally brought it under my notice. Its right to this adjective had a most remarkable effect on its price, and the advantages gained may possibly be more sentimental than real. Still, it is soothing to me to know that I have slits in my staircase through which I can discharge arrows, and there is a sense of power in the fact of possessing a complicated apparatus by means of which I am able to pour molten lead upon the head of the casual visitor. These things chime in with my peculiar humour, and I do not grudge to pay for them. I am proud of my battlements, and of the circular uncovered sewer which girds me round. I am proud of my portcullis, and dungeon and keep. There is but one thing wanting to round off the medievalism of my abode, and to render it symmetrically and completely antique, Gorsthorpe Grange is not provided with a ghost. Any man with old-fashioned tastes and ideas as to how such establishments should be conducted would have been disappointed at the omission. In my case it was particularly unfortunate. From my childhood I had been an earnest student of the supernatural, and a firm believer in it. I have revelled in ghostly literature until there is hardly a tale bearing upon the subject which I have not pursued. I learned the German language for the sole purpose of mastering a book upon demonology. When an infant I have secreted myself in dark rooms in the hope of seeing some of these bogies with which my nurse used to threaten me, and the same feeling is as strong in me now as then. It was a proud moment when I felt that a ghost was one of the luxuries which my money might command. It is true that there was no mention of an apparition in the advertisement. On reviewing the mildewed walls, however, and the shadowy corridors, I had taken it for granted that there was such a thing on the premises. As the presence of a kennel presupposes that of a dog, so I imagined that it was impossible that such desirable quarters should be untenanted by one or more restless shades. Good heavens, what can the noble family from whom I purchased it have been doing these hundreds of years? Was there no member of it spirited enough to make away with his sweetheart, or to take some other steps calculated to establish a hereditary spectre? Even now I can hardly write with patience upon the subject. For a long time I hoped against hope. Never did rat squeak behind the wainscot, or rain drip upon the attic floor, without a wild thrill shooting through me, as I thought that at last I had come upon traces of some unquiet soul. I felt no touch of fear upon these occasions. If it occurred in the night-time, I would send Mrs. Diod, who was a strong-minded woman, to investigate the matter, while I covered up my head with the bedclothes and indulged in an ecstasy of expectation. Alas, the result was always the same. The suspicious sound would be traced to some cause so absurdly natural and commonplace that the most fervid imagination could not clothe it with any of the glamour of romance. 
i might have reconciled myself to this state of things had it not been for jorrocks of haverstock farm jorrocks is a coarse burly matter-of-fact fellow whom i only happen to know through the accidental circumstance of his fields adjoining my domain yet this man though utterly devoid of all appreciation of archaeological unities is in possession of a well-authenticated and undeniable spectre its existence only dates back i believe to the reign of the second george when a young lady cut her throat upon hearing of the death of her lover at the battle of dettingen still even that gives the house an air of respectability especially when coupled with blood-stains upon the floor jorrocks is densely unconscious of his good fortune and his language when he reverts to the apparition is painful to listen to he little dreams how i covet every one of those moans and nocturnal wails which he describes with unnecessary objurgation things are indeed coming to a pretty pass when democratic spectres are allowed to desert the landed proprietors and annul every social distinction by taking refuge in the houses of the great unrecognized i have a large amount of perseverance nothing else could have raised me into my rightful sphere considering the uncongenial atmosphere in which i spent the earlier part of my life i felt now that a ghost must be secured but how to set about securing one was more than either mrs diod or myself was able to determine my reading taught me that such phenomena are usually the outcome of crime what crime was to be done then and who was to do it a wild idea entered my mind that watkins the house steward might be prevailed upon for a consideration to immolate himself or someone else in the interests of the establishment i put the matter to him in a half jesting manner but it did not seem to strike him in a favorable light the other servants sympathized with him in his opinion at least i cannot account in any other way for their having left the house in a body the same afternoon my dear mrs diod remarked to me one day after dinner as i sat moodily sipping a cup of sack i love the good old names my dear that odious ghost of jorrocks has been gibbering again let it gibber i answered recklessly mrs diod struck a few chords on her virginal and looked thoughtful into the fire i tell you what it is argentine she said at last using the pet name which we usually substitute for silas we must have a ghost sent down from london how can you be so idiotic matilda i remarked severely who could get us such a thing my cousin jack brockett could she answered confidently now this cousin of matilda's was rather a sore subject between us he was a rakish clever young fellow who had tried his hand at many things but wanted perseverance to succeed at any he was at that time in chambers in london professing to be a general agent and really living to a great extent upon his wits matilda managed so that most of our business should pass through his hands which certainly saved me a great deal of trouble but i found that jack's commission was generally considerably larger than all the other items of the bill put together it was this fact which made me feel inclined to rebel against any further negotiations with the young gentleman oh yes he could insisted mrs d seeing the look of disapprobation upon my face you remember how well he managed that business about the crest it was only a resuscitation of the old family coat of arms my dear 
I protested. Matilda smiled in an irritating manner. There was a resuscitation of the family portraits, too, dear, she remarked. You must allow that Jack selected them very judiciously. I thought of the long line of faces which adorned the walls of my banqueting hall, from the burly Norman robber, through every gradation of cask, plume, and ruff, to the sombre Chesterfieldian individual who appears to have staggered against a pillar in his agony at the return of a maiden M.S., which he grips convulsively in his right hand. I was fain to confess that in that instance he had done his work well, and that it was only fair to give him an order, with the usual commission, for a family spectre, should such a thing be attainable. It is one of my maxims to act promptly when once my mind is made up. Noon of the next day found me ascending the spiral stone staircase, which leads to Mr. Brockett's chambers, and admiring the succession of arrows and fingers upon the whitewashed wall, all indicating the direction that gentleman's sanctum. As it happened, artificial aids of the sort were unnecessary, as an animated flap-dance overhead could proceed from no other quarter though it was replaced by a deathly silence as I groped my way up the stair. The door was opened by a youth, evidently astounded at the appearance of a client, and I was ushered into the presence of my young friend, who was writing furiously in a large ledger, upside down as I afterward discovered. After the first greetings I plunged into business at once. "'Look here, Jack,' I said. "'I want you to get me a spirit, if you can.' "'Spirits, you mean?' shouted my wife's cousin plunging his hand into the waste-paper basket and producing a bottle, with the celerity of a conjuring trick. Let's have a drink. I held up my hand as a mute appeal against such a proceeding so early in the day, but on lowering it again I found that I almost involuntarily closed my fingers round the tumbler which my adviser had pressed upon me. I drank the contents hastily off, lest any one should come in upon us and set me down as a topper. After all, there was something very amusing about the young fellow's eccentricities. Not spirits, I explained smilingly. An apparition. A ghost. If such a thing is to be had, I should be very willing to negotiate. A ghost for Gorsthorpe Grange? inquired Mr. Brockett, with as much coolness as if I had asked for a drawing-room suite. Quite so, I answered. Easiest thing in the world, said my companion filling up my glass again in spite of my remonstrance. Let us see. He took down a large red notebook with all the letters of the alphabet in a fringe down the edge. A ghost, you said, didn't you? That's a G. G. A gems, a gimlets, a gas pipes, gauntlets, guns, galleys. Ah, here we are, ghosts. Volume 9, section 6, page 41. Excuse me and Jack ran up a ladder and began rummaging among a pile of ledgers on a high shelf. I felt half inclined to empty my glass into the spittoon when his back was turned, but on second thoughts I disposed of it in a legitimate way. "'Here it is,' cried my London agent, jumping off the ladder with a crash and depositing an enormous volume of manuscript upon the table. "'I have all these things tabulated, so that I may lay my hands upon them in a moment. It's all right. It's quite weak.' Here he filled our glasses again. What were we looking up again? Ghosts, I suggested. Of course. Page 41. Here we are. J. H. Fowler and Son, Dunkel Street, suppliers of mediums to the nobility and gentry. 
charm sold love filters mummies horoscopes cast nothing in your line there i suppose i shook my head despondingly frederick tabb continued my wife's cousin sole channel of communication between the living and the dead proprietor of the spirits of byron kirk white grimaldi tom crib and inigo jones that's about the figure nothing romantic enough there i objected good heavens fancy a ghost with a black eye and a handkerchief tied around its waist or turning somersaults and saying how are you tomorrow the very idea made me so warm that i emptied my glass and filled it again here is another said my companion christopher mccarthy bi-weekly seances attended by all the eminent spirits of ancient and modern times nativities charms abracadabras messages from the dead he might be able to help us however i shall have a hunt round myself to-morrow and see some of these fellows i know their haunts and it's odd if i can't pick up something cheap so there's an end of business he concluded hurling the ledger into the corner and now we'll have something to drink we had several things to drink so many that my inventive faculties were dulled next morning and i had some little difficulty in explaining to mrs diod why it was that i hung my boots and spectacles upon a peg along with my other garments before retiring to rest the new hopes excited by the confident manner in which my agent had undertaken the commission caused me to rise superior to alcoholic reaction and i paced about the rambling corridors and old-fashioned rooms picturing to myself the appearance of my expected acquisition and deciding what part of the building would harmonize best with its presence after much consideration i pitched upon the banqueting hall as being on the whole most suitable for its reception it was a long low room hung round with valuable tapestry and interesting relics of the old family to whom it had belonged coats of mail and implements of war glimmered fitfully as the light of the fire played over them and the wind crept under the door moving the hangings to and fro with a ghastly rustling at one end there was the raised dais on which in ancient times the host and his guests used to spread their table while a descent of a couple of steps led to the lower part of the hall where the vassals and retainers held wassail the floor was uncovered by any sort of carpet but a layer of rushes had been scattered over it by my direction in the whole room there was nothing to remind one of the nineteenth century except indeed my own solid silver plate stamped with a resuscitated family arms which was laid out upon an oak table in the centre this i determined should be the haunted room supposing my wife's cousin to succeed in his negotiation with the spirit mongers there was nothing for it now but to wait patiently until i heard some news of the result of his inquiries a letter came in the course of a few days which if it was short was at least encouraging it was scribbled in pencil on the back of a playbill and sealed apparently with a tobacco stopper i'm on track it said nothing of the sort to be had from any professional spiritualist but picked up a fellow in a pub yesterday who says he could manage it for you we'll send him down unless you wire to the contrary abrams is his name and he has done one or two of these jobs before the letter wound up with some incoherent allusions to a check and was signed by my affectionate cousin john brockett i need hardly say that i did not wire 
but awaited the arrival of Mr. Abrams with all impatience. In spite of my belief in the supernatural, I could scarcely credit the fact that any mortal could have such a command over the spirit world as to deal in them and barter them against mere earthly gold. Still, I had Jack's word for it that such a trade existed, and here was a gentleman with a geodiacal name ready to demonstrate it by proof positive. How vulgar and commonplace Jorrock's eighteenth-century ghost would appear, should I succeed in securing a real medieval apparition. I almost thought that one had been sent down in advance, for as I walked round the moat that night before retiring to rest, I came upon a dark figure engaged in surveying the machinery of my portcullis and drawbridge. His start of surprise, however, and the manner in which he hurried off into the darkness, speedily convinced me of his earthly origin, and I put him down as some admirer of one of my female retainers mourning over the muddy hellspond which divided him from his love whoever he may have been he disappeared and did not return though i loitered about for some time in the hope of catching a glimpse of him and exercising my feudal rights upon his person jack brockett was as good as his word the shades of another evening were beginning to darken round gorsthorpe grange when a peal at the outer bell and the sound of a fly pulling up announced the arrival of Mr. Abrams. I hurried down to meet him, half expecting to see a choice assortment of ghosts crowding in at his rear. Instead, however, of being the sallow-faced, melancholy-eyed man that I had pictured to myself, the ghost-dealer was a sturdy little podgy fellow, with a pair of wonderfully keen sparkling eyes, and a mouth which was constantly stretched in a good humour, if somewhat artificial grin. His sole stock in trade seemed to consist of a small leather bag, jealously locked and strapped, which emitted a metallic clink upon being placed on the stone flags of the hall. "'And how are you, sir?' he asked, wringing my hand with the utmost effusion. "'And the missus? How is she? And all the others? How's all their health?' I intimated that we were all as well as could reasonably be expected but Mr. Abrams happened to catch a glimpse of Mrs. Diod in the distance, and at once plunged at her with another string of inquiries as to her health, delivered so volubly and with such an intense earnestness that I half expected to see him terminate his cross-examination by feeling her pulse and demanding a sight of her tongue. All this time his little eyes rolled round and round, shifting perpetually from the floor to the ceiling and from the ceiling to the walls, taking in apparently every article of furniture in a single comprehensive glance. Having satisfied himself that neither of us was in pathological condition, Mr. Abrams suffered me to lead him upstairs, where a repast had been laid out for him to which he did ample justice. The mysterious little bag he carried along with him, and deposited it under his chair during the meal. It was not until the table had been cleared, and we were left together, that he broached the matter on which he had come down. "'I understand,' he remarked, puffing at a trichinopoly, "'that you want my help in fitting up this ear-house with a apparition.' I acknowledged the correctness of his surmise, while mentally wondering at these restless eyes of his, which still danced about the room as if he were making an inventory of the contents. "'And you won't find a better man for the job, though I says it as shouldn't.' continued my companion. 
what did i say to the young gent what spoke to me in the bar of the lame dog can you do it says he try me says i me and my bag just try me i couldn't say fairer than that my respect for jack brockett's business capacities began to go up very considerably he certainly seemed to have managed the matter wonderfully well you don't mean to say that you carry ghosts about in bags i remarked with diffidence mr abrams smiled a smile of superior knowledge you wait he said give me the right place and the right hour with a little of the essence of leucoptolycus here he produced a small bottle from his waistcoat pocket and you won't find no ghost that i ain't up to you'll see for yourself and pick your own and i can't say fairer than that as all mr abrams protestations of fairness were accompanied by a cunning leer and a wink from one or other of his wicked little eyes the impression of candour was somewhat weakened when are we going to do it i asked reverently ten minutes to one in the morning said mr abrams with decision some says midnight but i says ten to one when there ain't such a crowd and you can pick your own ghost and now he continued rising to his feet suppose you trot me round the premises and let me see where you wants it for there's some places as attracts em and some as they won't hear of not if there was no other place in the world mr abrams inspected our corridors and chambers with a most critical and observant eye fingering the old tapestry with the air of a connoisseur and remarking in an undertone that it would match uncommon nice it was not until he reached the banqueting hall however which i had myself picked out that his admiration reached the pitch of enthusiasm here's the place he shouted dancing bag in hand round the table on which my plate was lying and looking not unlike some quaint little goblin himself here's the place we won't get nothing to beat this a fine room noble solid none of your electroplate trash that's the way as things ought to be done sir plenty of room for em to glide here send up some brandy and a box of weeds i'll sit here by the fire and do the preliminaries which is more trouble than you think for them ghosts carries on awful at times before they finds out who they've got to deal with if you was in the room they'd tear you to pieces as light as not you leave me alone to tackle them and at half past twelve come in and i'll lay they'll be quiet enough by then mr abrams request struck me as a reasonable one so i left him with his feet upon the mantelpiece and his chair in front of the fire fortifying himself with stimulants against his refractory visitors from the room beneath in which i sat with mrs deod i could hear that after sitting for some time he rose up and paced about the hall with quick impatient steps we then heard him try the lock of the door and afterward dragged some heavy article of furniture in the direction of the window on which apparently he mounted for i heard the creaking of the rusty hinges as the diamond paned casement folded backward and i knew it to be situated several feet above the little man's reach mrs deod says that she could distinguish his voice speaking in low and rapid whispers after this but that may have been her imagination i confess that i began to feel more impressed than i had deemed it possible to be there was something awesome in the thought of the solitary mortal standing by the open window and summoning in from the gloom outside the spirits of the nether world 
it was with a trepidation which i could hardly disguise from matilda that i observed that the clock was pointing to half-past twelve and that the time had come for me to share the vigil of my visitor he was sitting in his old position when i entered and there were no signs of the mysterious movements which i had overheard though his chubby face was flushed as with recent exertion are you succeeding all right i asked as i came in putting on as careless an air as possible but glancing involuntarily round to see if we were alone only your help is needed to complete the matter said mr abrams in a solemn voice you shall sit by me and partake of the essence of leucoptolycus which removes the scales from our earthly eyes whatever you may chance to see speak not and make no movement lest you break the spell his manner was subdued and his usual cockney vulgarity had entirely disappeared i took the chair which he indicated and awaited the result my companion cleared the rushes from the floor in our neighbourhood and going down upon his hands and knees described a half circle with chalk which enclosed the fireplace and ourselves round the edge of this circle he drew several hieroglyphics not unlike the signs of the zodiac he then stood up and uttered a long invocation delivered so rapidly that it sounded like a single gigantic word in some uncouth guttural language having finished this prayer if prayer it was he pulled out the small bottle which he had produced before and poured a couple of teaspoonfuls of clear transparent fluid into a vial which he handed to me with an intimation that i should drink it the liquid had a faintly sweet odor not unlike the aroma of certain sorts of apples i hesitated a moment before applying it to my lips but an impatient gesture from my companion overcame my scruples and i tossed it off the taste was not unpleasant and as it gave rise to no immediate effects i leaned back in my chair and composed myself for what was to come mr abrams seated himself beside me and i felt that he was watching my face from time to time while repeating some more of the invocations in which he had indulged before a sense of delicious warmth and languor began gradually to steal over me partly perhaps from the heat of the fire and partly from some unexplained cause an uncontrollable impulse to sleep weighed down my eyelids while at the same time my brain worked actively and a hundred beautiful and pleasing ideas flitted through it so utterly lethargic did i feel that though i was aware that my companion put his hand over the region of my heart as if to feel how it was beating i did not attempt to prevent him nor did i even ask him for the reason of his action everything in the room appeared to be reeling slowly round in a drowsy dance of which i was the centre the great elk's head at the far end wagged solemnly backward and forward while the massive salvers on the tables performed cotillions with the claret cooler and the epergne my head fell upon my breast from sheer heaviness and i should have become unconscious had i not been recalled to myself by the opening of the door at the other end of the hall this door led on to the raised dais which as i have mentioned the heads of the house used to reserve for their own use and as it swung slowly back upon its hinges i sat up in my chair clutching at the arms and staring with a horrified glare at the dark passage outside something was coming down it something unformed and intangible 
but still a something dim and shadowy i saw it flit across the threshold whilst a blast of ice-cold air swept down the room which seemed to blow through me chilling my very heart i was aware of the mysterious presence and then i heard it speak in a voice like the sighing of an east wind among pine trees on the banks of a desolate sea it said i am the invisible nonentity i have affinities and am subtle i am electric magnetic spiritualistic i am the great ethereal sigh heaver i kill dogs mortal wilt thou choose me i was about to speak but the words seemed to be choked in my throat and before i could get them out the shadow flitted across the hall and vanished in the darkness at the other side while a long-drawn melancholy sigh quivered through the apartment i turned my eyes toward the door once more and beheld to my astonishment a very small old woman who hobbled along the corridor and into the hall she passed backward and forward several times and then crouching down at the very edge of the circle upon the floor she disclosed a face the horrible malignity of which shall never be vanished from my recollection every foul passion appeared to have left its mark upon that hideous countenance ha ha she screamed holding out her wizened hands like the talons of an unclean bird you see what i am i am the fiendish old woman i wear snuff-coloured silks my curse descends on people sir walter was partial to me shall i be thine mortal i endeavoured to shake my head in horror on which she aimed a blow at me with her crutch and vanished with an eldritch scream by this time my eyes turned naturally toward the open door and i was hardly surprised to see a man walk in of tall and noble stature his face was deathly pale but was surmounted by a fringe of dark hair which fell in ringlets down his back a short pointed beard covered his chin he was dressed in loose-fitting clothes made apparently of yellow satin and a large white ruff surrounded his neck he paced across the room with slow and majestic strides then turning he addressed me in a sweet exquisitely modulated voice i am the cavalier he remarked i pierce and am pierced here is my rapier i clink steel this is a blood-stain over my heart i can emit hollow groans i am patronized by many old conservative families i am the original manor-house apparition i work alone or in company with shrieking damsels he bent his head courteously as though waiting my reply but the same choking sensation prevented me from speaking and with a deep bow he disappeared he had hardly gone before a feeling of intense horror stole over me and i was aware of the presence of a ghastly creature in the room of dim outlines and uncertain proportions one moment it seemed to pervade the entire apartment while at another it would become invisible but always leaving behind it a distinct consciousness of its presence its voice when it spoke was quivering and gusty it said i am the lever of footsteps and the spiller of gouts of blood i tramp upon corridors charles dickens has alluded to me i make strange and disagreeable noises 
I snatch letters and place invisible hands on people's wrists. I am cheerful. I burst into peals of hideous laughter. Shall I do one now? I raised my hand in a deprecating way, but too late to prevent one discordant outbreak which echoed through the room. Before I could lower it, the apparition was gone. I turned my head toward the door in time to see a man come hastily and stealthily into the chamber. He was a sunburned, powerfully built fellow, with earrings in his ears and a Barcelona handkerchief tied loosely round his neck. His head was bent upon his chest, and his whole aspect was that of one afflicted by intolerable remorse. He paced rapidly backward and forward like a caged tiger, and I observed that a drawn knife glittered in one of his hands, while he grasped what appeared to be a piece of parchment in the other. His voice, when he spoke, was deep and sonorous. He said, I am a murderer. I am a ruffian. I crouch when I walk. I step noiselessly. I know something of the Spanish main. I can do the lost treasure business. I have charts. I'm able-bodied and a good walker, capable of haunting a large park. He looked toward me beseechingly, but before I could make a sign I was paralyzed by the horrible sight which appeared at the door. It was a very tall man, if indeed it might be called a man, for the gaunt bones were protruding through the corroding flesh, and the features were of a leaden hue. A winding sheet was wrapped round the figure, and formed a hood over the head, from under the shadow of which two fiendish eyes, deep-set in their grisly sockets, blazed and sparkled like red-hot coals. The lower jaw had fallen upon the breast, disclosing a withered, shriveled tongue, and two lines of black and jagged fangs. I shuddered and drew back as this fearful apparition advanced to the edge of the circle. "'I am the American blood-curdler,' it said in a voice which seemed to come in a hollow murmur from the earth beneath it. "'None other is genuine. I am the embodiment of Edgar Allan Poe.' I am circumstantial and horrible. I am a low-caste, spirit-subduing spectre. Observe my blood and my bones. I am grisly and nauseous. No depending on artificial aid. Work with grave clothes, a coffin lid, and a galvanic battery. Turn her white in a night. The creature stretched out its fleshless arms to me as if in entreaty, but I shook my head, and it vanished, leaving a low, sickening, repulsive odour behind it. I sank back in my chair, so overcome by terror and disgust that I would have willingly resigned myself to dispensing with a ghost altogether, could I have been sure that this was the last of the hideous procession. A faint sound of trailing garments warned me that it was not so. I looked up and beheld a white figure emerging from the corridor into the light. As it stepped across the threshold I saw that it was that of a young and beautiful woman dressed in the fashion of a bygone day. 
her hands were clasped in front of her and her pale proud face bore traces of passion and of suffering she crossed the hall with a gentle sound like the rustling of autumn leaves and then turning her lovely and unutterably sad eyes upon me she said i am the plaintive and sentimental the beautiful and ill-used i have been forsaken and betrayed i shriek in the night-time and glide down passages my antecedents are highly respectable and generally aristocratic my tastes are aesthetic old oak furniture like this would do with a few more coats of mail and plenty of tapestry will you not take me her voice died away in a beautiful cadence as she concluded and she held out her hands as in supplication i am always sensitive to female influences besides what would jorrock's ghost be to this could anything be in better taste would i not be exposing myself to the chance of injuring my nervous system by interviews with such creatures as my last visitor unless i decided at once she gave me a seraphic smile as if she knew what was passing in my mind that smile settled the matter she will do i cried i choose this one and as in my enthusiasm i took a step toward her i passed over the magic circle which had girdled me round argentine we have been robbed i had an indistinct consciousness of these words being spoken or rather screamed in my ear a great number of times without my being able to grasp their meaning a violent throbbing in my head seemed to adapt itself to their rhythm and i closed my eyes to the lullaby of robbed 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 a vigorous shake caused me to open them again however and the sight of mrs diod in the scantiest of costumes and most furious of tempers was sufficiently impressive to recall all my scattered thoughts and make me realize that i was lying on my back on the floor with my head among the ashes which had fallen from last night's fire and a small glass vial in my hand i staggered to my feet but felt so weak and giddy that i was compelled to fall back into a chair as my brain became clearer stimulated by the exclamations of matilda i began gradually to recollect the events of the night there was the door through which my supernatural visitors had filed there was the circle of chalk with the hieroglyphics round the edge there was the cigar box and the brandy bottle which had been honored by the attentions of mr abrams but the seer himself where was he and what was this open window with a rope running out of it and where oh where was the pride of gorsthorpe grange the glorious plate which was to have been the delectation of generations of diots and why was mrs d standing in the gray light of dawn wringing her hands and repeating her monotonous refrain it was only very gradually that my misty brain took these things in and grasped the connection between them reader i have never seen mr abrams since i have never seen the plate stamped with the resuscitated family crest hardest of all i have never caught a glimpse of the melancholy spectre with the trailing garments nor do i expect that i ever shall in fact my night's experiences have cured me of my mania for the supernatural and quite reconciled me to inhabiting the humdrum nineteenth-century edifice on the outskirts of london which mrs d has long had in her mind's eye 
as to the explanation of all that occurred that is a matter which is open to several surmises that mr abrams the ghost hunter was identical with jemmy wilson alias the nottingham crackster is considered more than probable at scotland yard and certainly the description of that remarkable burglar tailed very well with the appearance of my visitor the small bag which i have described was picked up in a neighboring field next day and found to contain a choice assortment of jimmies and centre bits footmarks deeply imprinted in the mud on either side of the moat showed that an accomplice from below had received the sack of precious metals which had been let down through the open window no doubt the pair of scoundrels while looking round for a job had overheard jack brockett's indiscreet inquiries and had promptly availed themselves of the tempting opening and now as to my less substantial visitors and the curious grotesque vision which i had enjoyed am i to lay it down to any real power over occult matters possessed by my nottingham friend for a long time i was doubtful upon the point and eventually endeavoured to solve it by consulting a well-known analyst and medical man sending him the few drops of the so-called essence of leucoptolycus which remained in my vial i append the letter which i received from him only too happy to have the opportunity of winding up my little narrative by the weighty words of a man of learning arundel street dear sir your very singular case has interested me extremely the bottle which you sent contained a strong solution of chloral and the quantity which you describe yourself as having swallowed must have amounted to at least eight grains of the pure hydrate this would of course have reduced you to a partial state of insensibility gradually going on to complete coma in this semi-unconscious state of chloralism it is not unusual for circumstantial and bizarre visions to present themselves more especially to individuals unaccustomed to the use of the drug you tell me in your note that your mind was saturated with ghostly literature and that you had long taken a morbid interest in classifying and recalling the various forms in which apparitions have been said to appear you must also remember that you were expecting to see something of that very nature and that your nervous system was worked up to an unnatural state of tension under the circumstances i think that far from the sequel being an astonishing one it would have been very surprising indeed to any one versed in narcotics had you not experienced some such effects i remain dear sir sincerely yours t e stubb m d argentine diod esq the elms brixton end of section 19 recording by edward kirkby warwick england International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories, edited by William Patton. Section 20. A Change of Treatment. By w. w. Jacobs. Yes, I've sailed under some cute skippers in my time, said the night watchman. Them that go down in big ships see the wonders of the deep, you know. 
he added with a sudden chuckle the one i'm going to tell you about ought never to have been trusted out without his ma a good many of my skippers had fads but this one was the worst i ever sailed under it's just some few years ago now i chipped on his bark the john elliot as slow going an old tub as ever i was aboard of when i wasn't in quite a fit and proper state to know what i was doing and i hadn't been in her two days afore i found out his obby through overhearing a few remarks made by the second mate who came up from dinner in a hurry to make em i don't mind saws and knives hung round the cabin he says to the first mate but when a chap has a ooman and alongside his plate studying it while folks is at their food it's more than a christian man can stand that's nothing says the first mate who had sailed with the bark afore he's half crazy on doctoring we nearly had a mutiny aboard once owing to his wantin' a hold on post-mortem on a man what fell from the masthead wanted to see what the poor feller died of i call it unwholesome says the second mate very savage he offered me a pill at breakfast the size of a small marble quite put me off my feet it did of course the skipper's fad soon got known forward but i didn't think much about it till one day i seed old dan'l dennis sitting on a locker reading every now and then he'd shut the book and look up closing his eyes and moving his lips like a hen drinking and then look down at the book again why dan i says what's up you ain't learning lessons at your time o' life yes i am says dan very soft you might hear me say it it's this one about heart disease he hands over the book which was stuck full of all kinds of diseases and winks at me ard picked it up out of bookstall he says and then he shut his eyes and said his piece wonderful it made me feel quite queer to listen to him that's how i feel says he when he'd finished just strength enough to get to bed lend me a hand bill and go fetch the doctor then i see his little game but i wasn't going to run any risk so i just mentioned promiscuous like to the cook as old dan seemed rather queer and went back and tried to borrow the book being always fond of reading old dan pretended he was too ill to hear what i was saying and fore i could take it away from him the skipper came hurrying down with a bag in his hand what's the matter my man says he what's the matter i'm all right sir says old dan except that i've been swooning away a little tell me exactly how you feel says the skipper feeling his pulse then old dan said his piece over to him and the skipper shook his head and looked very solemn how long have you been like this he says four or five years sir says dan it ain't nothing serious sir is it you lie quite still says the skipper putting a little trumpet thing to his chest and then listening hmm there's serious mischief here i'm afraid the prognotice is very bad prog what sir says dan staring prognotice says the skipper at least i think that's the word he said you keep perfectly still and i'll go and mix you up a draught and tell the cook to get some strong beef tea on well the skipper had no sooner gone than cornish harry a great big lumbering chap o six feet two goes up to old dan and he says give me that book go away says dan don't come worrying here you heard the skipper say how bad my prognotice was you lend me the book says harry catching hold of him or else i'll bang you first and split to the skipper arterward i believe i'm a bit consumptive anyway i'm going to see 
He dragged the book away from the old man and began to study. There were so many complaints in it, he was almost tempted to have something else instead of consumption. But he decided on that at last, and he got a cough what worried the forecastle all night long. And the next day, when the skipper came down to see Dan, he could hardly hear himself speak. That's a nasty cough you've got there, my man, says he, looking at Harry. Oh, it's nothing, sir, says Harry, careless-like. I've had it for months now, off and on. I think it's perspiring so of a night, does it? What, says the skipper, do you perspire of a night? Dreadful, says Harry. You could wring the clothes out. I suppose it's healthy for me, ain't it, sir? Undo your shirt, says the skipper, going over to him and sticking the trumpet again him. Now take a deep breath. Don't cough. I can't help it, sir, says Harry. It will come. Seems to tear me to pieces. You get to bed at once, says the skipper, taking away the trumpet and shaking his head. It's a fortunate thing for you, my lad. You're in skilled hands. With care, I believe I can pull you round. How does that medicine suit you, Dan? Beautiful, sir, says Dan. It's wonderful soothing. I slept like a newborn babe out of it. I'll send you to get some more, says the skipper. You're not to get up, mind, either of you all right sir says the two in very faint voices and the skipper went away arter telling us to be careful not to make a noise we all thought it a fine joke at first but the airs them two chaps give themselves was something sickening being in bed all day they was naturally wakeful of a night and they used to call across the forecastle inquiring arter each other's health and waking us other chaps up and they'd swap beef tea and jellies with each other and dan'd try to coax a little port wine out of harry which he had to make blood with but harry'd say he hadn't made enough that day and he'd drink to the better health of old dan's prognotus and smack his lips until it drove us a'most crazy to ear him after these chaps had been ill two days the other fellows began to put their heads together being maddened by the smell of beef tea and the like and said they was going to be ill too and both the invalids got into a fearful state of excitement. You'll only spoil it for all of us, says Harry, and you don't know what to have without the book. It's all very well doing your work as well as our own, says one of the men. It's our turn now. It's time you two got well. Well, says Harry, well? Why, you silly, ignorant chaps, we shan't never get well. People with our complaints never do. You ought to know that. Well, I shall split, says one of them. You do, says Harry, you do, and I'll put a ed on you that all the port wine and jellies in the world wouldn't cure. Sides, don't you think the skipper knows what's the matter with us? Afore the other chaps could reply, the skipper himself comes down, accompanied by the first mate, with a look on his face which made Harry give the deepest and hollowest cough he'd ever done. What they really want, says the skipper, turning to the first mate, is careful nursing i wish you'd let me nurse em says the first mate only ten minutes i'd put em both on their legs and run for their lives into the bargain in ten minutes hold your tongue sir says the skipper what you say is unfeeling besides being an insult to me do you think i studied medicine all these years without knowing when a man's ill the first mate growled something and went on deck and the skipper started examining of em again he said they was wonderfully patient lying in bed so long and he had em wrapped up in bedclothes and carried on deck so as the pure air could have a go at em we had to do the carrying and there they sat 
breathing the pure air and looking at the first mate out of the corners of their eyes if they wanted anything from below one of us had to go and fetch it and by the time they was taken down to bed again we all resolved to be took ill too only two of em did it though for harry who was a powerful ugly tempered chap swore he'd do all sorts of dreadful things to us if we didn't keep well and hearty and all except these two did one of em mike rafferty laid up with a swelling on his ribs which i knew myself he had had for fifteen years and the other chap had paralysis i never saw a man so really happy as the skipper was he was up and down with his medicines and his instruments all day long and he used to make notes of the cases in a big pocket-book and read em to the second mate at meal-times the forecastle had been turned into hospital about a week and i was on deck doing some odd jobs or the other when the cook comes up to me pulling a face as long as a fiddle another invalid says he first mate's gone stark staring mad mad says i yes says he he's got a big basin in the galley and he's laughing like a hyena and mixing bilge water and ink and paraffin and butter and soap and all sorts of things up together the smell's enough to kill a man i've had to come away curious like i just walked up to the galley and puts my ed in and there was the mate as the cook said smiling all over his face and ladling some thick sticky stuff into a stone bottle how's the poor sufferer sir says he stepping out of the galley just as the skipper was going by they're very bad but i hope for the best says the skipper looking at him hard i'm glad to see you're turned a bit more feeling yes sir says the mate i didn't think so at first but i can see now them chaps is all very ill you'll excuse me for saying it but i don't quite approve of your treatment i thought the skipper would a bust my treatment says he my treatment what do you know about it you're treating em wrong sir says the mate i have here patting the jar a remedy which would cure them all if you'd only let me try it pooh says the skipper one medicine cure all diseases the old story what is it where'd you get it from says he i brought the ingredients aboard with me says the mate it's a wonderful medicine discovered by my grandmother and if i might only try it i'd thoroughly cure them poor chaps rubbish says the skipper very well sir says the mate shrugging his shoulders of course if you won't let me you won't still i tell you if you'd let me try i'd cure em all in two days that's a fair challenge well they talked and talked and talked until at last the skipper give way and went down below with the mate and told the chaps they was to take the new medicine for two days just to prove the mate was wrong let poor old dan try it first sir says harry starting up and sniffing as the mate took the cork out he's been awful bad since you've been away harry's worse than i am sir says dan it's only his kind heart that makes him say that it don't matter which is first says the mate filling a tablespoon with it there's plenty for all now harry take it says the skipper harry took it and the fuss he made you'd have thought he was swallowing a football it stuck all round his mouth and he carried on so dreadful that the other invalids was half sick afore it came to them by the time the other three had had theirs it was as good as a pantomime and the mate corked the bottle up and went and sat down on a locker while they tried to rinse their mouths out with the luxuries which had been given em how do you feel says the skipper i'm dying says dan 
so am i says harry i believe the mate's poisoned us the skipper looks over at the mate very stern and shakes his head slowly it's all right says the mate it's always like that the first dozen or so doses dozen or so doses says old dan in a faraway voice it has to be taken every twenty minutes says the mate pulling out his pipe and lighting it and the four men groaned all together i can't allow it says the skipper i can't allow it men's lives mustn't be sacrificed for an experiment tain't an experiment says the mate very indignant it's an old family medicine well they shan't have any more says the skipper firmly look here says the mate if i kill any one of these men i'll give you twenty pound on a bright i will make it twenty-five says the skipper considering very good says the mate twenty-five i can't say no fairer than that can i it's about time for another dose now he gave em all another tablespoon as the skipper left and the chaps what wasn't invalids nearly bust with joy he couldn't let em have anything to take the taste out cause he said it didn't give the medicine a chance and he told us other chaps to remove the temptation and you bet we did after the fifth dose the invalids began to get desperate and when they heard they got to be woke up every twenty minutes through the night to take the stuff they sort of give up old dan said he felt a gentle glow stealing over him and strengthening him and harry said that it felt like a healing balm to his lungs all of them agreed it was a wonderful sort of medicine and out of the sixth dose the man with paralysis dashed up on deck and ran up the rigging like a cat he sat there for hours spitting and swore he'd brain anybody who interrupted him and arter a while mike rafferty went up and joined him and if the first mate's ears didn't burn by reason of the things them two poor sufferers said about him they ought to they was all doing full work the next day and though o course the skipper saw how he'd been done he didn't allude to it not in words that is but when a man tries to make four chaps do the work of eight and hits em when they don't it's a easy job to see where the shoe pinches end of section twenty international short stories volume two english stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox org recording by lynn thompson international short stories volume two english stories edited by william patton section twenty one the sticket minister by s r crockett the renunciation of robert fraser formerly student in divinity the crows were wheeling behind the plough in scattering clusters and plumping singly upon the soft thick grubs which the ploughshare was turning out upon an unkindly world it was a basque blowy day in the end of march and there was a hint of storm in the air a hint emphasized for those skilled in weather law by the presence of half a dozen seagulls while vagrants among the black coats blown by the south wind up from the solway a snell scotch but not unfriendly day altogether robert fraser bent to the plough handles and cast a keen and wary eye towards his guide-posts on the ridge his face was colourless even when a dash of rain came swirling across the crest of bengern whose steep bulk heaved itself a blue haystack above the level horizon of the moorland 
He was dressed like any other ploughman of the South Uplands, rough homespun, much the worse for wear, and leggings the colour of the red soil which he was reversing with the share of his plough. Yet there was that about Robert Fraser which marked him no common man. When he paused at the top of the ascent and stood with his back against the horns of the plough, the countryman's legacy from Adam of the Mattock, he pushed back his weather-beaten straw hat with a characteristic gesture and showed a white forehead with blue veins channeling it, a damp, heavy lock of black hair clinging to it, as in Seven's picture of John Keats on his deathbed. Robert Fraser saw a couple of black specks which moved smoothly and evenly along the top of the distant dyke of the highway. He stood still for a moment or two, watching them. As they came nearer, they resolved themselves into a smart young man sitting in a well-equipped jig, drawn by a showily actioned home, and driven by a man in livery. As they passed rapidly along the road, the hand of the young man appeared in a careless wave of recognition over the stone dyke and robert fraser lifted his slack reins in staid acknowledgment it was more than a year since the brothers had looked each other so nearly in the eyes they were dr henry fraser the rising physician of carn edward and his elder brother robert once a student of divinity at edinburgh college whom three parishes knew as the sticket minister when Robert Fraser stabled his horse that night and went into his supper, he was not surprised to find his friend, Saunders McHear of Drumquat, sitting by the peat fire in the room. Almost the only thing which distinguished the sticket minister from the other small farmers of the parish of Dalag was the fact that he always sat in the evening by himself, Ben the Hoose, and did not use the kitchen in common with his housekeeper and herd-boy, save only at meal-times. Robert had taken to Saunders ever since, the back of his ambition broken. He had settled down to the farm, and he welcomed him with shy cordiality. "'You'll take a cup of tea, Saunders?' he asked. "'Thank you, Robert. I wouldna be worked, returned his friend. "'I saw your brother the day,' said Saunders McKeer, after the teacups had been cleared away and the silent housekeeper had replaced the books upon the table. Saunders picked a couple of them up, and having adjusted his glasses he read the titles milton's work and a volume of a translation of dorner's person of christ i saw your brother the day he mun be getting a big practice ay said robert fraser very thoughtfully saunders mckeer glanced up quickly it was of course natural that the unsuccessful elder brother should envy the prosperous younger but he had thought that robert fraser was living on a different plane it was one of the few things that the friends had never spoken of, though everyone knew why Dr. Fraser did not visit his brother's little farm. He's getting in when the boot-folk knew, and thinks maybe that his brother would do him the credit. That was the way the clash of the countryside explained the matter. I never told you how I came to leave the college, Saunders, said the younger man, resting his brow on a hand that even the horn of the plough could not make other than diaphanous. No, said Saunders quietly, with a tender gleam coming into the humoursome eyes that lurked under the bushy tussocks of grey eyebrow. Saunders's humour lay near the fountain of tears. No, continued Robert Fraser, I have not spoken it to so many. But you've been a good friend to me, Saunders, and I think you should hear it. I have not tried to set myself right with folks in the general, 
but I would like to let you see clearly before I go my ways to him who seeth from the beginning. Here tell him, said Saunders, man, your your host is no near as sair as it was in the back end. You'll be here lang after me, but lang is short. Well, do you ken, Robert Fraser, that you need not to pitch yourself right with me. Hey, I no ken ye sins ye was the sick of the two scrubbers. I thank you, Saunders, said Robert, but I am well aware that I am to die this year. No, no, not a word. It is the Lord's will. It's more than seven year now since I first kenned that my days were to be few. It was the year my father died, and left Harry and me by a lane. He left no siller to speak of, just plenty to lay him decently in the kirkyard among his forebears. I had been a year at the Divinity Hall then, and was going up to put my discourses for the next session. I had been troubled with my breast for some time, and so called one day at the infirmary to get a word with Sir James. He was very busy when I went in, and never noticed me till the host took me. Then, on a sudden, he looked up from his papers, came quickly over to me, put his own white handkerchief to my mouth, and said quietly, Come into my room, laddie. Aye, he was a good man and a faithful, Sir James, if ever there was one. He told me that with care I might live five or six years, but it would need great care. Then a strange, prickly coldness came over me, and I seemed to walk light-headed in an atmosphere suddenly rarefied, and I think I know now how the mouse feels under the air-pump. "'What's that?' queried Saunders. "'A cruel ploy, not worth speaking of,' continued the sticket minister. "'Well, I found something in my throat when I tried to thank him, but I came my ways home to the Dullug. Night and day I considered what was to be done, with so much to do and so little time to do it.' It was clear that both Harry and me could not gang through the college on the little my father had left. So late one night I saw my way clear to what I should do. Harry must go, I must stay. I must come home to the farm and be my own man. Then I could send Harry to the college to be a doctor, for he had no call to the ministry, as once I thought I had. More than that, it was laid on me to tell Jessie London that Robert Fraser was no better than a machine set to go five year. Now all these things I did, Saunders, but there's no use telling you what they cost me in doing. They were right to do, and they were done. I do not repent any of them. I would do them all over again, were they to do it, but it's been bitterer than I thought. The sticket minister took his head off his hand and leaned wearily back in his chair. The story went over the country that I had failed in my examinations, and I never said that I had not. But there were some that knew better who might have contradicted the report if they had liked I settled down to the farm and I put Harry through the college sending all but a bare living to him in Edinburgh I Worked the work of the farm rain and shine ever since I have been for these six years the sticket minister That all the world kens the day Whilst Harry did not think that he got enough He was always writing for more and not so very pleased when he did not get it he was i different to me ye ken saunders and he cannot be judged by the same standard as you and me i can said saunders mckeer a spark of light lying in the quiet of his eyes well continued robert fraser lightened by saunders's apparent agreement the time came when he was clear from the college and wanted a practice he had been ill-advised that he had not got his share of the farm and he wanted it sells for share and share alike now I kenned, as you ken, Saunders, that it's no worth much in one share, let alone two. So I got the place quietly bonded, 
and bought him old Dr. Aitkin's practice in Cairn Edward with the money. I have tried to do my best for the lad, for it was laid on me to be my brother's keeper. He does not come here much, continued Robert, but I think he's not so well against me as he was. Saunders, he waved his hand to me when he was going by the day. That was kind of him, said Saunders McKeer. Aye, was it now? said the sticket minister, eagerly, with a soft look in his eyes, as he glanced up at his brother's portrait in cap and gown, which hung over the china dogs on the mantelpiece. I got my notice this morning that the bond is to be called up in November, said Robert. So I'll be obliged to flit. Saunders McKeer started to his feet in a moment. Never, he said, with the spark of fire alive now in his eyes. Never as long as there's a beast on Trum Quat, or a pound in Cairn Edward Bank, bringing down his clenched fist upon the Milton on the table. No, Saunders, no, said the sticket minister very gently. I thank you kindly, but I'll be flitted before that. End of section 21International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. Edited by William Patton. Section 22. The Lammas Preaching by S. R. Crockett. And I further intimate, said the minister, that I will preach this evening at Coldshaws, and my text will be from the ninth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes and the tenth verse. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Save us, said Janet MacTaggart. He's clean forgotten, if it be the Lord's will. Maybe he'll be for gone whether it's his wool or no. He's a sair masterful man, the minister, but when he comes for the Maccas, and kens little about the jealous God we have among the hills of Galloa, the minister continued in the same high, level tone in which he did his preaching. There are a number of sluggards who lay the weight of their own laziness on the Almighty, saying, I am a worm and no man. How should I strive with my Maker? whenever they are at strife with their own sluggishness there will be a word for all such this evening at the farm town of coldshaws presently occupied by gilbert mckissock public worship to begin at seven o'clock the congregation of barnesock kirk tumbled amicably over its own heels with eagerness to get into the kirkyard in order to settle the momentous question whose back was he on the day Robert Kirk, Caisthorn, had a packet of peppermint lozenges in the crown of his lum hat, deponed to by Elizabeth Douglas, or Barr, in Barmbogri, whose husband, William Barr, put on the hat of the aforesaid William Kirk by mistake for his own, whereupon the peppermints fell to the floor and rolled under the pews in most unseemly fashion. Elizabeth Kirk is of opinion that this should be brought to the notice of session, she herself always taking her peppermint while genteelly wiping her mouth with the corner of her handkerchief robert kirk on being put to the question admits the fact but says that it was his wife put them there to be near at hand 
the minister however ready with his word brought him to shame by saying oh robert robert that was just what adam said the woman thou gavest me she gave me to eat the aforesaid robert kirk thinks that it is meddling with the original hebrew to apply this to peppermints and also says that elizabeth kirk is an impudent besom and furthermore that as all the country well knows here the chronicler omits much matter actionable in the civil courts of the realm janet said the minister to his housekeeper i am to preach to-night at coldshaws on the text whatsoever thy hand findeth to do do it with thy might i can said janet i saw it on your desk i patted to blow the clock for fear the ones o' heaven mick blow it away like chaff and you couldn't a do wantin it janet mactaggart said the minister tartly bring in the dinner and do not meddle with what does not concern you janet could not abide red sermons her natural woman rose against them she knew as she had said that god was a jealous god and with a regard to the minister she looked upon herself as his vice-regent he's young and terrible ramsdam and opinionated for a booklear but with little gracious experience for all that the root of the matter's in him said janet not unhopefully i'm going to preach at coldshaws and my texts whatsoever thy hand findeth to do do it with thy might said the minister to the precentor that afternoon on the manse doorstep the lord's no enacted thoughts i'll gang with the lad myself said the precentor now galloway is so much out of the world that the almighty has not there lifted his hand from reward and punishment from guiding and restraining as he has done in big towns where everything goes by machinery man may say that there is no god when he only sees a handbreadth of smoky heaven between the chimney-pots but out on the fields of oats and bear and up on the screes of the hillsides where the mother granite sticks her bleaching ribs through the heather men have reached great assurance on this and other matters the burns were running red with the mighty july rain when douglas mcclellan started over the meadows and moors to preach his sermon at the farm town of coldshaws he had thanked the lord that morning in his opening prayer for the bounteous rain wherewith he had seen meet to refresh his weary heritage his congregation silently acquiesced for what said they could a man from the Maccas be expected to ken about meadow hay when the minister and the precentor got to the foot of the manse loaning they came upon the parish ne'er-do-well eby kurgan who kept himself in employment by constantly scratching his head trying to think of something to do and whose clothes were constructed on the latest sanitary principles of ventilation the ruins of eby's hat were usually tipped over one eye for enlarged facilities of scratching in the rear if it's your will minister i'll come to hear ye the night it's drawing to Merrain, i'm thinking said the scarecrow i hope the discourse may be profitable to you ebenezer for as i intimated this morning i am to preach from the text whatsoever thy hand findeth to do do it with thy might ay minister said eby relieving his right hand and tipping his hat over the other eye to give his left hand free play 
so the three struck over the fields making for the thorn tree at the corner where robert kirk's dyke dipped into the standing water of the meadow do you think you can manage it mr mcclellan said the precentor you're what half way up the leg already and there's six feet of black moss water in the lane burn as sure as i'm leaving sal added e b kurgan i'm to preach at cauldshaws and my text is whatsoever thy hand findeth to do do it with thy might said the minister stubbornly glooming from under the eaves of his eyebrows as the swarthy men from the Maccas are wont to do his companions said no more they came to camelon lane where usually robert kirk had a leaping pole on either bank to assist the traveller across but both poles had gone down the water in the morning to look for robert's meadow hay take care mr mcclellan you'll be in deep water afore ye ken oh man ye had far better turn the precentor stood up to his knees in water on what had once been the bank and wrung his hands but the minister pushed steadily ahead into the turbid and sluggish water i canna come or i canna come for i'm a man that has a family it's not your work stay where you are cried the minister without looking over his shoulder but as for me i'm intimated to preach this night at coldshaws and my text here he stepped into a deep hole and his text was suddenly shut within him by the gurgle of moss water in his throat his arms rose above the surface like the black spars of a windmill but e b kurgan sculled himself swiftly out swinging with his shoeless feet and pushed the minister before him to the further bank the water gushing out of rents in his clothes as easily as out of the gills of fish the minister stood with unshaken confidence on the bank he ran peat water like a spout in a thunder plump and black rivulets of dye were trickling from under his hat down his brow and dripping from the end of his nose then you'll not come any further he called across to the precentor i canna oh i canna though i'm most awful willing kirsty would never forgive me gin i was droon then i'll e'en have to raise the tune myself though three times kilmarnock is a pity said the minister turning on his heel and striding away through the shallow sea splashing the water as high as his head with a kind of headstrong glee which seemed to the precentor a direct defiance of providence e b kurgan followed half a dozen steps behind the support of the precentor's lay semi-equality taken from him he began to regret that he had come and silently and ruefully plunged along after the minister through the waterlogged meadows they came in time to the foot of robert kirk's march dyke and skirted it a hundred yards upward to avoid the deep pool in which the Lanaburn waters were swirling the minister climbed silently up the seven-foot dyke pausing a second on the top to balance himself for his leap to the other side as he did so e b kurgan saw that the dyke was swaying to the fall having been weakened by the rush of water on the farther side he ran instantly at the minister and gave him a push with both hands which caused mr mcclellan to alight on his feet clear of the falling stones the dyke did not so much fall outward as settle down in its own ruins eby fell on his face among the stones with the impetus of his own eagerness 
he arose however quickly only limping slightly from what he called a bit chack on the leg between two stones that was a merciful providence ebenezer said the minister solemnly i hope you are duly thankful dad i am that replied eby scratching his head vigorously with his right hand and rubbing his leg with his left could i hadn't a gin you that dunch you might a preacher none at coldshaws this night they now crossed a fairly level clover field dark and laid with wet the scent of the clover rose to their nostrils and almost overpowering force there was not a breath of air the sky was blue and the sun shining only a sullen roar came over the hill sounding in the silence like the rush of a train over a far-away viaduct what is that queried the minister stopping to listen eby took a brisk sidelong look at him i'm some dootsome that'll be the skyboom coming doon off a cairnsmuir the minister tramped unconcernedly on eby kurgan stared at him he canna ken what a skyburn warning is he'll be thinking it's some bit macker's burn as the lad set their whirly mills in but he'll turn right enough when he sees skyburn roaring reading the flammer's flood i'm thinking they took their way over the shoulder of the hill in the beautiful evening leaning eagerly forward to get the first glimpse of the cause of that deep and resonant roar in a moment they saw below them a narrow rock-walled gully ten or fifteen yards across filled to the brim with rushing water it was not black peat water like the camelon lake but it ran red as keel flecked now and then with a revolving white blur as one of the cold sheep spun downward to the sea with four black feet turned pitifully up to the blue sky eby looked at the minister he'll turn no if he's mortal he said but the minister held on he looked at the water up and down the roaring stream on a hill above the farmer of coldshaws having driven all his remaining sheep together sat down to watch seeing the minister he stood up and excitedly waved him back but douglas mcclellan from the Mackers never gave him a look and his shouting was of less effect than if he had been crying to an untrained collie the minister looked long up the stream and at a point where the rocks came very close together and many stunted pines were growing he saw one which having stood on the immediate brink had been so much undercut that it leaned over the gully like a fishing rod with a keen glance along its length the minister jamming his dripping soft felt hat on the back of his head was setting foot on the perilous slope of the uneven red-brown trunk when eb kurgan caught him sharply by the arm it's not for me to speak to a minister at ordinary times he stammered gathering courage in his desperation but oh man it's fair murder to try to gang o'er that water the minister wrenched himself free and sprang along the trunk with wonderful agility I'm intimated to preach at Coldshaws this night, and my text is, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, he shouted. He made his way up and up the slope of the fir tree, which, having little grip of the rock, dipped and swayed under his tread. Eby Kurgan fell on his knees and prayed aloud. He had not prayed since his stepmother boxed his ears for getting into bed without saying his prayers twenty years ago this had set him against it 
but he prayed now and to infinitely more purpose than his minister had recently done but when the climber had reached the branchy top and was striving to get a few feet farther in order to clear the surging lynn before he made his spring ebie rose to his feet leaving his prayer unfinished he sent forth an almost animal shriek of terror the tree roots cracked like breaking cables and slowly gave way an avalanche of stones plumped into the whirl and the top of the fir crashed downwards on the rocks of the opposite bank oh man call on the name of the lord cried ebie kurgan the ragged preacher at the top of his voice then he saw something detach itself from the tree as it rebounded and for a moment rise and fall black against the sunset then ebie the outcast fell on his face like a dead man in the white coverleted room of the farm town of coldshaws a white-faced lad lay with his eyes closed and a wet cloth on his brow a large boned red-cheeked motherly woman stole to and fro with a foot as light as a fairy the sleeper stirred and tried to lift an unavailing hand to his head the mistress of coldshaws stole to his bedside as he opened his eyes she laid a restraining hand on him as he strove to rise let me up said the minister i must away for i'm intimated to preach at coldshaws and my text is whatsoever thy hand findeth to do do it with thy might my bonny man said the good wife tenderly you'll preach best on the broad o' your back this money a day and when ye you rise your best text will be he sent from above he took thee and drew me out of many waters End of section 22International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gilles Leblanc. International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. Edited by William Patton. Section 23. An Undergraduate's Aunt by f anstey author of vice versa etc frederick flushington belonged to a small college and in doing so conferred upon it one of the few distinctions it could boast namely that of possessing the very bashfulest man in the whole university but his college did not treat him with any excess of adulation on that account probably from a prudent fear of rubbing the bloom off his modesty they allowed him to blush unseen which was the condition in which he preferred to blush he felt himself oppressed by a paucity of ideas and a difficulty in knowing which way to look in the presence of his fellow-men which made him never so happy as when he had fastened his outer door and secured himself from all possibility of intrusion though it was almost an unnecessary precaution for nobody ever thought of coming to see flushington in appearance he was a man of middle height with a long scraggy neck and a large head which gave him the air of being much shorter than he really was he had little weak eyes a nose and mouth of no particular shape and very smooth hair of no definite colour 
he had a timid deprecating air which seemed due to the consciousness that he was an uninteresting anomaly and he certainly was as impervious to the ordinary influence of his surroundings as any undergraduate well could be he lived a colourless aimless life in his little rooms under the roof reading every morning from nine till two with a superstitiously mechanical regularity though very often his books completely failed to convey any ideas whatever to his brain which was not a particularly powerful organ if the afternoon was fine he generally sought out his one friend who was a few degrees less shy than himself and they took a monosyllabic walk together or if it was wet he read the papers at the union and in the evening after hall he studied general literature a graceful term for novels or laboriously spelt out a sonata upon his piano a habit which did not increase his popularity fortunately for flushington he had no jip or his life might have been made a positive burden to him and with his bedmaker he was rather a favourite as a gentleman who gave no trouble meaning that when he observed his sherry unaccountably sinking like the water in a lock when the sluices are up flushington was too delicate to refer to the phenomenon he was sitting one afternoon over his modest lunch of bread and butter potted meat and lemonade when all at once he heard a sound of unusual voices and a strange flutter of dresses coming up the winding stone staircase outside and was instantly seized with a cold dread there was no particular reason for being alarmed although there were certainly ladies mounting the steps probably they were friends of the man opposite who was always having his people up but still flushington had that odd presentiment which nervous people have sometimes that something unpleasant is on its way to them and he half rose from his chair to shut his outer oak it was too late the dresses were rustling now in his very passage there was a pause a few faint smothered laughs and little feminine coughs then two taps at the door come in cried flushington faintly he wished he had been reading anything but the work by m zola which was propped up in front of him it is your mild man who frequently has a taste for seeing the less reputable side of life in this second-hand way and flushington would toil manfully through the voluminous pages hunting up every third word in the dictionary with a sense of injury when as was often the case it was not to be found still there was a sort of intellectual orgy about it which had strong fascinations for him while he knew enough of the language to be aware when the incidents approached the improper though he was not always able to see quite clearly in what this impropriety consisted the door opened and his heart seemed to stop and all the blood rushed violently to his head as a large lady came sweeping in her face rippling with a broad smile of affection she horrified flushington who knew nobody with the least claim to smile at him so expansively as that he drank lemonade to conceal his confusion you know me my dear fred she said easily of course not how should you i'm for goodness sake my dear boy don't look so terribly frightened i'm your aunt your aunt amelia come over from australia the shock was a severe one to flushington 
who had not even known he possessed such a relative he could only say oh which he felt even then was scarcely a warm greeting to give an aunt from the antipodes oh but she added cheerily that's not all i've another surprise for you the dear girls would insist on coming up too to see their grand college cousin they're just outside i'll call them shall i in another second flushington's small room was overrun by a horde of female relatives while he looked on gasping they were pretty girls too many of them but that was all the more dreadful to him he did not mind the plainer ones half so much a combination of beauty and intellect reduced him to a condition of absolute imbecility he was once caught and introduced to a charming young lady from newham and all he could do was to back feebly into a corner and murmur thank you repeatedly he was very little better than that then as his aunt singled out one girl after another we won't have any formal nonsense between cousins she said you know them all by name already i dare say this is milly that's jane here's flora and kitty and margaret and that's my little thomasina over there by the bookcase poor flushington ducked blindly in the direction of each and then to them all collectively he had not presence of mind to offer them chairs or cake or anything and besides there was not nearly enough of anything for all of them meanwhile his aunt had spread herself comfortably out in his armchair and was untying her bonnet strings and beaming at him until he was ready to expire with confusion i do think she observed at last that when an old aunt all the way from australia takes the trouble to come and see you like this you might spare her just one kiss flushington dared not refuse he tottered up and kissed her somewhere about the face after which he did not know which way to look he was so terribly afraid that he might have to go through the same ceremony with his cousins which he simply could not have survived happily for him they did not appear to expect it and he balanced a chair on its hind legs and resting one knee upon it waited patiently for them to begin a conversation he could not have uttered a single word the aunt came to his rescue you don't ask after your uncle samuel who used to send you the beetles she said reprovingly no said flushington who had forgotten uncle samuel and his beetles too no how is uncle samuel quite well i hope only tolerably so thank you fred you see he never got over his great loss no said flushington desperately of course not it was a, a a large sum of money to lose at once i was not referring to money said she with a slight touch of stoniness in her manner i was alluding to the death of your cousin john flushington had felt himself getting on rather well just before that but this awkward mistake for he could not recollect having heard of cousin john before threw him off his balance again he collapsed into silence once more inwardly resolving to be lured into no more questions concerning relatives his ignorance seemed to have aroused pathetic sentiments in his aunt i ought to have known she said shaking her head they'd soon forget us in the old country here's my own sister's son and he doesn't remember his cousin's death well well now we're here we must see if we can't know one another a little better fred 
you must take the girls and me everywhere and show us everything like a good nephew you know flushington had a horrible mental vision of himself careening about all cambridge followed by a long procession of female relatives a fearful possibility to so shy a man shall you be here long he asked only a week or so we're at the bull very near you you see and i'm afraid you think us very bold beggars fred but we're going to ask you to give us something to eat i've set my heart so have the girls haven't you dears on lunching once with a college student in his own room there's nothing so extraordinary in it i assure you protested flushington and and uh, i'm afraid there's very little for you to eat the kitchen and, and buttery are closed he said this at a venture as he felt absolutely unequal to facing the college cook and ordering lunch from that tremendous personage he would rather order it from his own tutor even but if you don't mind potted ham there's a little at the bottom of this tin and there's some bread and an inch of butter and marmalade and a few biscuits and there was some sherry this morning the girls all professed themselves very hungry and contented with anything so they sat around the table and poor flushington served out meagre rations of all the provisions he could find even to his figs and french plums but there was not nearly enough to go around and they lunched with evident disillusionment thinking that the college luxury of which they had heard so much had been greatly exaggerated during luncheon the aunt began to study flushington's features attentively there's a strong look of poor dear simon about him when he smiles she said looking at him through her gold double glasses there did you catch it girls just his mother's profile turn your face a little more towards the window so as to get the light on your nose don't you see the likeness to your aunt's portrait girls and flushington had to sit still with all the girls charming eyes fixed critically upon his crimson countenance he longed to be able to slide down under the table and evade them but of course he was obliged to remain above he's got dear caroline's nose the aunt went on triumphantly and the cousins agreed that he certainly had caroline's nose which made flushington feel vaguely that he ought at least to offer to return it presently one of the girls whispered to her mother who laughed indulgently what do you think this silly child wants me to ask you now fred she said she says she would so like to see what you look like with your college cap and gown on will you put them on just to please her so flushington had to put them on and walk slowly up and down the room in them feeling all the time what a dismal spectacle he was making of himself while the girls were plainly disappointed and remarked that somehow they had thought the academical costume more becoming then began a hotly maintained catechism upon his studies his amusements his friends and his mode of life generally which he met with uneasy shiftings and short timid answers that they did not appear to think altogether satisfactory indeed the aunt who by this time felt the potted ham beginning to disagree with her asks him with something of severity in her tone whether he went to church regularly and he said that he didn't go to church but was always regular at chapel on this she observed coldly that she was sorry to hear her nephew was a dissenter 
and flushington was much too shy to attempt to explain the misunderstanding he sat quiet and felt miserable while there was another uncomfortable pause the cousins were whispering together and laughing over little private jokes and he after the manner of sensitive men of course imagined they were laughing at him and perhaps he was not very far wrong on this occasion so he was growing hotter and hotter every second inwardly cursing his whole race and wishing that his father had been a foundling when there came another tap at the door why that must be poor old sophie said his aunt fred you remember old sophie no you can't you were only a baby when she came to live with us but she'll remember you she begged so hard to be taken and so we told her she might come on here slowly after us and then an old person in a black bonnet came feebly in and was considerably affected when she saw flushington to think she quavered to think as my dim old eyes should see the child i've nursed on my lap growed out into a college gentleman and she hugged flushington and wept on his shoulder till he was almost cataleptic with confusion but as she grew calmer she became more critical she confessed to a certain feeling of disappointment with flushington he had not filled out she said so fine as he'd promised to fill out and when she asked if he recollected how he wouldn't be washed unless they put his little wooden horse on the washstand and what a business it was to make him swallow his castor oil it made flushington feel like a fool this was quite bad enough but at last the girls began to go round his rooms exclaiming at everything admiring his pipe and umbrella racks his buffalo horns and his quaint wooden kettle holder until they happened to come upon his french novel and being unsophisticated colonial girls with a healthy ignorance of such literature they wanted flushington to tell them of what it was all about his presence of mind had gone long before and this demand threw him into a violent perspiration he could not invent and he was painfully racking his brains to find some portion of the tale which would bear repetition when there was another knock at the door at this flushington was perfectly dumb with horror he prepared himself blankly for another aunt with a fresh relay of female cousins or more old family servants who had washed him in his infancy and he sat there cowering but when the door opened a tall fair-haired good-looking young fellow who from his costume had evidently just come up from the tennis court came bursting in impulsively oh i say he began have you heard have you seen oh beg pardon didn't see you know he added as he noticed the extraordinary fact that flushington had people up oh let me introduce you said flushington with a vague idea that this was the proper thing to do mr lushington mrs no i don't know her name my aunt my cousins the young man who had just been about to retire bowed and stared with a sudden surprise do you know he said slowly to the other i rather think that's my aunt i'm afraid not whispered flushington she seems quite sure she's mine well i've got an aunt and cousins i've never seen before coming up to-day said the newcomer and yours is uncommonly like the portrait of mine if they belong to you do take them away said flushington feebly 
I don't think I can keep up much longer. What are you whispering about, Fred? cried the aunt. Is it something we are not to know? He says he thinks there's been a mistake, and you're not my aunt, explained Flushington. Oh, does he? she said, drawing herself up indignantly. And what does he know about it? I didn't catch his name. Who is he? Fred Lushington, he said. That's my name. And who are you, if he's Fred Lushington, she inquired, turning upon the unfortunate owner of the rooms. I'm Frederick Flushington, he stammered. I'm sorry, but I can't help it. Then you're not my nephew at all, sir, cried the aunt. Thank you very much, said Flushington gratefully. You see, her real nephew was explaining to her, there isn't much light on the staircase, and you must have thought his name over the door was F. Lushington. So in you went, you know. The porter told me you'd been asking for me, so I looked in here to see whether you had been heard of, and here you are. But why didn't he tell me, she said, for she was naturally annoyed to find that she had been pouring out all her pent-up affection over a perfect stranger, and she even had a dim idea that she had put herself in rather a ridiculous position, which of course made her feel very angry with Flushington. Why couldn't he explain before matters had gone on so far? How was I to know? pleaded Flushington. I dare say I have aunts in Australia, and you said you were one of them. But you asked after Uncle Samuel, she said accusingly. You must have had some object, I cannot say what, in encouraging my mistake. Oh, I'm sure of it. You told me to ask after him, said the unhappy Flushington. I thought it was all right. What else was I to do? The cousins were whispering and laughing together all this time, and regarding their new cousin with shy admiration, very different from the manner in which they had looked at poor Flushington. And the old nurse, too, was overjoyed and declared that she felt sure from the first that her master Frederick had not turned out so undersized as him, meaning Flushington. Yes, yes, said Lushington hastily, quite a mistake on both sides. Quite sure Flushington isn't the man to go and intercept any fellow's aunt. I wouldn't have done it for worlds if I had known, he protested very sincerely. Well, she said, a little mollified, I'm very sorry we've all disturbed you like this, Mr. Mr. Flushington. The unlucky man said something about not minding it now. And now, Fred, perhaps you will show us the way to the right rooms. Come along, then, said he. I'll run down and tell them to send up some lunch. They did not explain that they had lunched already. You come too, Flushington, and then after lunch you and I will row the ladies up to Byron's pool. Yes, do come, Mr. Flushington, the ladies said kindly. But Flushington wriggled out of it. To begin with, he did not consider he knew his neighbor sufficiently well. Besides, he had had enough of female society for one day. Indeed, long after that, he would be careful in fastening his door about luncheon time. And if he saw any person in Cambridge who looked as if she might by any possibility turn out to be a relation, he would flee down a back street. End of section 23
international short stories volume two english stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by lynn thompson international short stories volume two english stories edited by william patton section twenty four the silhouettes by a t quiller couch a small round gentleman who had come all the way to gantic village from the extreme south of france and had blown his flageolet all day in gantic street without exciting its population in the least was disgusted toward dusk he crossed the stile which divides sanctuary lane from the churchyard and pausing with a leg on each side of the bar shook his fist back at the village which lay below its grey roofs and red chimneys just distinguishable here and there between a foamy sea of apple blossom and a haze of bluish smoke he could not very well shake its dust off his feet for this was hardly separable from the dust of many other places on his boot and also it was mostly mud but his gesture betokened extreme malevolence these cornishmen he said are pigs all there is not a cornishman that is not a big pig he lifted the second leg wearily over the bar as for artfit moreover they shut up their churches this was really a serious matter for he had not a penny piece in his pocket the last had gone to buy a loaf and there was no lodging to be had in the village the month was april a bad time to sleep in the open and though the night drew in tranquilly upon a day of broad sunshine the earth had by no means sapped in the late heavy rains the church porch however had a broad bench on either side and faced the south away from the prevailing wind he had made a mental note of this early in the day being schooled to anticipate such straits as the present as he passed up the narrow path between the graves with a gait like a limping hare's, he scanned his surroundings carefully the churchyard was narrow and surrounded by a high gray wall mostly hidden by an inner belt of well-grown cypresses at one point the ranks of these trees were broken for some forty feet and here the back of a small dwelling-house abutted on the cemetery there was one window only in the yellow washed wall and this window looked straight on the church porch the flageolet player regarded it with suspicion but the casement was shut and the blind drawn down the aspect of the cottage too proclaimed that its inhabitants were very poor folk not at all the sort to tell tales upon a casual tramp if they spied him bivouacking upon holy ground he limped into the porch and cast off the blue bag that was strapped upon his shoulders out of it he drew a sheep's wool cape worn very thin and then turned the bag inside out on the chance of discovering a forgotten crust the search disappointed him but he took it calmly being on the whole a sweet-tempered man and not easily angered except by the affront to his vanity his violent indignation against the people of gantic arose from their indifference to his playing had they even run out at their doors to listen and stare he would not have minded their stinginess he that cannot eat had best sleep 
the little man passed the flat of his hand in the dusky light over the two benches and having chosen the one with fewest asperities on its surface tossed his bag and flageolet upon the other pulled off his boots folded his cape to make a pillow and stretched himself at length in less than ten minutes he was sleeping dreamlessly over his head there hung a board containing a list or two of the parish ratepayers and the usual notice of the spring training of the royal cornwall rangers militia this last placard had broken from two of its fastenings and toward midnight was rustled by an eddy of the light wind so loudly as to wake the sleeper he sat upright and lowered his bare feet upon the pavement outside the blue firmament was full of stars sparkling unevenly as though the wind was trying in sport to extinguish them in the eaves of the porch he could hear the martins rustling in the crevices that they had come back but a few days since to warm again but what drew the man to the entrance was the window in the cottage over the wall the lattice was pushed back and the room inside was brightly lit but a white sheet had been stretched right across the window between him and the lamp and on this sheet two quick hands were waving all kinds of clever shadows shaping them moving them and reshaping them with the speed of lightning it was certainly a remarkable performance the shadows took the form of rabbits swans foxes elephants fairies sailors with wooden legs old women who smoked pipes ballet girls who pirouetted twirling harlequins and the profiles of eminent statesmen and all made with two hands and at the most the help of a tiny stick or a piece of string they danced and capered drew large and then small with such odd turns and changes that the flageolet player could hardly hold his laughter he remarked that the hands whenever they were disentwined for a moment appeared to be very small and plump after about ten minutes the display ceased and the shadow of a woman's head and neck crossed the sheet which was presently drawn back at one corner is that any better asked a woman's voice low but distinct the flageolet player started and bent his eyes lower across the graves and into the shadow beneath the window for the first time he grew aware that a figure stood there a little way out from the wall as well as he could see it was a young boy that was beautiful mother you can't think how you've improved at it this week any mistakes the harlequin and columbine seemed a little stiff but that's the hardest of all i know never mind they've got to be perfect we'll try them again she was about to drop the corner of the sheet when the listener sprang out toward the window leaping with bare feet over the graves and waving his flageolet madly oh no no madame he cried wait one moment the tiniest and i shall inspire you whoever is that cried the voice at the window rising almost to a scream the youth beneath the wall faced round on the intruder he had turned white and wanted to run but mastered his voice to inquire gruffly who the devil are you i i am an artist and as such i salute madame and monsieur her son she is greater artist than i but i shall help her her harlequin and columbine shall dance better this time why because they shall dance to my music the music that i shall make here 
on this spot under the stars i shall play as if possessed i feel that i bet you it is because i have found an artist an artist in gantic oh my good law he had pulled off his greasy hat and stood bowing and smiling showing his white teeth and holding up his flagellet for the women to see and convince herself that's all very well said the boy but my mother doesn't want it known yet that she practices at these shadows huh it is perhaps forbidden by law since you have found us out sir said the woman i will tell you why we are behaving like this and trust you to tell nobody i have been left a widow in great poverty and with this one son who must be educated as well as his father was six months ago when sadly perplexed i found out by chance that this small gift of mine might earn me a good income at a uh, a music hall richard of course doesn't like my performing at such places but agrees with me that he must be educated so we are hiding it from everybody in the village because we have always been respected here and as soon as i have practised enough we mean to travel up to london of course i shall change my name and nobody will but the flageolet player sat suddenly down upon a grave and broke into hysterical laughter oh 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 quick madame dance your pretty fingers while yet i laugh and before i curse oh stars and planets look down on this mad world and help me play and oh monsieur pardon me if i laugh for that either you or i are mad is a cocksure dance madame he put the flageolet to his lips and blew in a moment or two harlequin and columbine appeared on the screen and began to caper nimbly naturally with the wildest grace the tune was a merry reel and soon began to inspire the performer above her small dancers in a twinkling turned into a gambling elephant then to a couple of tripping fairies a moment after there were flower and butterfly then a jigging donkey then harlequin and columbine again with each fantastic change the tune quickened and the dance grew wilder till tired out the woman spread her hands wide against the sheet as if imploring mercy the player tossed his flageolet over a headstone and rolled back on the grave in a paroxysm of laughter above him the rooks had poured out of their nests and were calling to each other monsieur he gasped at last sitting up and wiping his eyes was it good this time it was quite different i'll own then could you spare from the house one little crust of bread for i am famished the youth returned in a couple of minutes with some bread and cold bacon of course he said if you should meet either of us in the village tomorrow you will not recognize it the little man bowed i agree said he with your mother monsieur that you must be educated at all costs end of section twenty four